Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Lights, Camera, Action Movie Review Podcast. On this episode, part one of our discussion of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. To read more of our reviews and listen to our podcasts, go to lcamoviereviews.com. This podcast does contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Listener discretion is advised. And now, here are your hosts for the podcast, Mike Winkler and Jason Kobasik. Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody to another Lights, Camera, Action Movie Reviews podcast. Mike Winkler here with you along with... Jason Kabasik. Well, it's that time of the year again. Summer movie season has come upon us, and that means Marvel season. And that means a new Avengers film is going to bookend all of this. I am very excited, as I know you are as well. Mm. Ten more days. Ten more days as we're recording this podcast. Uh, yeah, and you know, uh, Jason and I were talking about what are we going to do for a big podcast leading into Avengers? What's the big master plan? And what we decided to do, ladies and gentlemen, is we're going to give a breakdown of the entire MCU, all 21 movies today. So I hope you, you know, are sitting someplace, laying someplace with a nice cold drink and some food, because sit with us for a while, because we anticipate we're going to be here for a while talking about 21 films. Uh, yes, we are. And just to let you know, we are not going to be going in the order that the movies were released. We're going to be going in order of story-wise... Correct. Down to where we are today. So as you all know, in 2008, Iron Man 1 is what launched the cinematic universe. That's not what we're starting with. We will be starting with the first film, which will be Captain America, the first Avenger, all leading into, of course, Endgame. All right. So, Captain America, the first Avenger. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I'm going to do this all day. This one came out in 2011. Yeah, and you know what's surprising about this? We got we got uh, four Marvel movies before we got this one. Yeah, uh, it was really interesting. And the choice at the time I thought was really weird because I thought I had heard rumors back in the day, obviously way back in the day, that uh, at some point Fantastic Four was going to be a part of the MCU finally. Correct. And I sitting here thinking, are we going to finally see Chris Evans playing Johnny Storm? Yeah, that's a good point. When did the last Fantastic Four come out? Silver Surfer. Oh God, uh, might want to look that up. Cause I don't know. Yeah, because uh, at this time, I mean, I think we were pretty close to that just wrapping up. Okay, yeah, Silver Surfer came out in two thousand seven. Just the uh, what four years before we got Captain America. Yeah. So yeah, it was not looking very looking very good for Chris Evans to step into this role, or it wasn't even a thought. So this was a big surprise to me. I didn't know how he was gonna do at first when this was announced as him being Captain America. Yeah, I you know it, at the time you know it, we didn't know what to expect. We knew that the first Avenger was gonna launch the universe into seeing everything before Iron Man, and how was it gonna launch him into the time period when he gets frozen? Yeah. Um. So, yeah, some of the info going into this, uh, I, I don't really know too much. Uh, from reading here, uh, the film was in development as far back as April of 1997. Really? Yeah. Uh, I'm surprised by that. I didn't know that it was going to be that far in 
like that far in advance they've been planning this. So yeah, it looks like it went through many different uh, development stages. Uh, in 2000, um, it was trying to be developed, and then it went through many different legal issues, and it wasn't actually until 2005 when Marvel started making the films that Paramount Pictures agreed to distribute the film and go forward. But initially, the film was going to stand alone. Really? I, mean, I, I guess I can understand that, just because they had no idea what they were going to expect with... Uh the whole Marvel MCU becoming what it did because they had no idea how the movies were going to turn out probably. Well, yeah, because, you know, you go back and you look at this, at that point you had two Iron Mans, a Hulk movie and Thor. I mean, they knew what they wanted to build, but they didn't really know if this was going to continue because after first Avenger, we got the Avengers and that was really your make or break movie at that point. Yeah. But, um, so, you know, going into Captain America, um, going into that movie, what did you initially expect, you know, how things were going to go in that movie? What, how did you think it was going to go? Uh, honestly, I had no idea how it was going to go. I'm glad that they went into the backstory of Captain America in this film, like, showing how, uh, Steve Rogers had, you know, grown up really f weak and frail from his sickness, and how, you know, he was originally rejected from the army. Right, right. And, you know, too, as, as you, you talk about his, you know, his young and fragile self, this is the one thing that worried me, especially from the first trailer for the movie, was how they were going to pull off Chris Evans on this skinny body, how they were going to pull that off to make that seem real. Yeah. You know, and, and, and to this day, there are some shots in the movie that do look a little funky, but all in all, I mean, you look at, you look at the, what they did to it, it actually looked very, very good, for its time, anyway. Yeah, well, mind you, it's it's also, I mean, these this movie was shot back when. Uh, well, it came out in two thousand eleven, so it probably wasn't shot until 2010, 2009. Oh, you got to figure the technology still wasn't. I mean, yeah, it was really advanced, but it still had its clunkiness to it too. I mean, we've seen movies from back in that time that we really could have critiqued, like how the visual effects, how the camera angles were, right. and how bad that some of them could have been. So, like, seeing some of that, it really made you think, is this really going to be any worth it? Well, yeah, because everybody everybody thinks that, you know, wouldn't it be just a simple copy and paste job for a face? It's really not that simple because you have to track movements. You have to make sure you, you, have, you have your character. Like, they casted somebody else in, in the small body form, and they basically had to put a probably a green screen mask on that actor to plaster Chris Evans' face on that. And it's not as easy as just going in and plastering a face. You have to capture movements and make sure everything is precise, and that is not an easy thing to do. And I applaud them for actually making it work, especially back as far as 2011 is concerned. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, going back into it, yeah, so after, you know, overhearing uh, Roger's pleas and everything, you know, you had uh, the general offer him the opportunity to take part in an experiment, which was Operation Rebirth. Correct, correct. And, you know, oh, and by the way, that role, the doctor, played very well by Stanley Tucci. I like Stanley oh, Tucci yeah. a lot. And that's why I was so upset to see him killed off so early, even though it, it launches Captain America to be the hero that he is. Yeah. All right, and then now, I mean, 
because we see that yeah because after doing all this after taking part in the experiment over the few weeks we see how you know he ended up becoming what he was and you know after beginning administered the super soldier serum uh you know he had merged looking like what we know captain america to be big bulky powerful yeah um Throughout the film, you know, we don't really know, well, at the time, the te- what the Tesseract ends up being in the big picture of things throughout this whole universe. Yeah. Um, if, I'm, if I'm correct on this, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but this is the first time, um, did we see the Tesseract in Thor 1? I don't think so. Uh, we'll have to go look over our notes when we go get to that to, in order to actually... See, but I think this was the first showing of the Tesseract. That's what I was thinking too, because Red Skull finds it in the uh, in that church in the very, very beginning yeah. when he launched through the tank. So this is the first time we see a Tesseract that launches this whole universe into something really huge, and um, we don't really know at this point what the what the true power of the Tesseract really is. And we just know that uh, you know Hydra forces were looking for it, right? Looking for the Tesseract. Uh, which, you know, as they just described, possessed untold powers. So we had no idea what it did at the time. And, you know, once uh, the, you know, the f- leader of the Hydra forces, uh, Schmidt, had found the true Tesseract, he had the churchkeeper who guarded it killed, along with everyone else that was in that village. Yeah, yeah, just all to get the Tesseract, and we really find out really how powerful this thing is and why somebody wants it so badly. Um, but, you know, you, you, you look at, like, Red Skull, and people people don't know... Um, Hugo Weaving, of course, we all know him as Agent Smith from the Matrix trilogy. Um, he plays a fantastic part here, and there there's some backstory with some issues he had with Marvel. I won't get into all that. There's a lot of bad things he actually said about making this film long after he made it, and that's part of the reason why um, when... Infinity War came out and he re- and his role was back in there, Red Skull. Yeah. He was not playing the role of Red Skull in Infinity War. I don't know if anybody knows that, but he did not reprise the role. That role was actually... Yeah, I was about to say, I noticed that something was off when you saw that at first. Yeah, he... he I mean, the, the Sam Witwer's one that played the part. He, he, he embodied Hugo Weaving pretty well. I mean, he did the accent correctly. He still looked the part. I mean, it was a pretty seamless transition, but Hugo Weaving will never return as Red Skull due to his history with Marvel, so... Yeah, I don't really know all the story behind it, but... Neither do I, and, you know, it's kind of unfortunate. Yeah, it's his mistake. I mean, we know the history with some Marvel people, um, Edward Norton being one of them, which we'll get into with the Incredible Hulk stuff coming up here soon. Uh, You know, this movie is fun. I like the fact that the reason why this is one of my favorite Marvel movies, especially, is because it takes place in the 40s. Yeah. And it's the only Marvel movie to take place this far back. Other than, you know, Captain Marvel, but that takes place in the mid-90s, so that's as far back as we go. Well, I mean, because going back into the lore of Captain America back in the comics, I mean, the original comics were released back during the Great Depression era. Right, right. So, So, yeah, he really was the first Avenger. Correct. So, I mean, they really followed that to a T with how they did that. So, as the movie pedals along... Uh, Steve gets in the military, he becomes the project, but the 
but the military is not using him to his full potential. They're using him as basically a, a poster boy, putting him for shows for the uh, for the army, you know, for entertainment purposes, dancing with you know scantily clad women, making making a fool basically of him. Yeah. And he's meant for something greater. And you know, Peggy Carter, you know, the woman that he loves in the big picture of things, um, really encourages him to be better than he better than he is to make that necessary step to be away from this poster boy. Yeah. And and it's really interesting to see how I, this all played out because at the end of this you see uh, at the end of this movie one of the things that I really loved was um where you see Nick Fury come up and tell him that, you know, Cap's been asleep for nearly 70 years. Oh, at the end of the film? Yeah. Yeah, that was a pretty... I mean, if you don't really know the comics and you're going into the Marvel Universe seeing everything for the first time, which, me personally, that's how I'm looking at it. I haven't read many of the comics. I don't know a lot about it. When I've watched these movies, these were my first experiences with Marvel characters. Now, I mean, that's changed because now I'm into the comics now because of these, but... When I saw that at the end, that was a big reveal for me because I didn't know how that all all that all happened. Yeah. So yeah, I agree with you. That was a pretty damn good scene to launch us into what would be the Avengers coming up after this. Uh, it's I mean in the sense of what was being made, but um, going back to when uh, Steve finally embraces to go forward, he has to go find his friend Bucky, who's been captured by Red Skull. And all them, mm -hmm. and uh, he finds him tied up. Uh, he gets him out of there, and he becomes the hero by getting the whole group of guys that were in the camps and getting them back to safety. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else to note that you wanted to add about this film? Uh, just uh, my overall thing of the movie. Um, and this goes to Endgame. I, I have my theories about Endgame about how this will go because I I love his relationship with Peggy in this film. And really, I feel bad for Steve Rogers even now with how far we are with his relationship with Peggy. And I have my theories. That yeah, because, I mean, you see, you look at it because you see how one of the end sequences of this film played out was, you know, he saw no way to land that plane without, uh, without risking detonating the weapons that are on there. He yeah. made the sacrifice. He made the sacrifice to crash it in the Arctic shelf uh, while saying goodbye to Peggy. And you know, I still think it, you, you know, know he, and he made a promise or you know to take her dancing, knowing that he would never be able to make it. The sad thing is, too, is that after all these movies, I still think that Steve and Peggy's relationship is actually one of the best as far as relationship wise. Yeah. Because even though they've only really spent one movie together at, at, at having that chemistry. How it's carried over into each Cap movie, into the Avengers movies, you still feel the heartbreak in Steve's heart that he never really fully belongs in our time period. Yeah. And you just want to have him be able to go back and be with her, and it's sad. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why I really like this movie, and I like Cap's character, because of the connection with her and his connection to living back in the 40s and such. Um, but all in all, this is a great start to, the series, to, to, to this timeline, if you're seeing this first. Yeah, um, uh, and then... What did you think about the casting for this movie? Obviously, oh, we already yeah. know about 
Chris Evans being, playing uh, Cap. Perfect Captain America. He plays it perfectly. He couldn't have asked for a better Cap. Um, uh, what do you think about uh, Sebastian Stan as Bucky? Sebastian Stan plays Bucky really well. Um, and, you know, what's funny is, again, like I said before about not really knowing what was going to happen in these movies, when, when he died, I thought he was dead. Because yeah. I didn't know about him becoming the Winter Soldier and all that stuff. And... Uh, yeah, that was upset. one of the things I was wanted you to see. I wanted to know what your reaction was going to be when you find out that Bucky was the Winter Soldier. Yeah, I did not know that was coming. I was shocked, and uh, I was upset And I, when he died. I was like, ah, oh, this is a good character. He's gone now. But this, is, I guess, is going to be Cap's motivation going forward, and I guess it kind of was. Yeah. Um, and it, it was necessary. Um, I also love the addition of, uh, of Tommy Lee Jones. He's great in everything. So it's not a surprise he's good here. Yeah, it was nice to see him uh, taking up the role that he did. He did a really great job playing uh, Phillips. He did. Uh, Haley Atwell's Peggy Carter. Love her. Yes. Love her. She, looking at her on screen, I can just see why Steve falls in love with her. Oh, I know. I fell in love with looking at her the first time. It's easy. Uh, who didn't? You know, but her character's great. And again, I am disappointed that she's only really been in one movie other than her cameo as her older self. Yeah. Um, but, you know, she's great, too. But the rest of the cast is all good here. The movie as a whole is good. Um, and definitely a great start if you watch this movie first into what's to come. So Exactly. Highly recommended. One of my favorites of actually the whole Marvel Universe, so it makes a whole lot of sense. Okay, so moving forward in the overall scheme of things, the next movie to get us to the timeline is... Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel. Aren't you the cutest little thing? Aren't you cute? And what's your name, huh? Carrie. What's you? I'll be back. Yes. The newest one of the MCU. Yes. So, um, what did you think of Captain Marvel as a whole? Because I really haven't gotten much of your opinion on that. Well, like I told you before, I this one is the one that I have not seen yet. You have not seen Captain Marvel yet. I have not seen Captain Marvel yet. I, I know, know a lot that. of the backstory of okay. Captain Marvel already, but this is the one that I haven't seen yet. But, I mean, I've heard so many things told about it, so it's just a matter of just seeing what matches up with the story. Um, I mean, I, I, I liked Captain Marvel. It's definitely not high on, on my, you know, top of my list here. Because I did have some overall problems with like the um, the pacing issues in the beginning. Yeah. The way the movie's edited and put together is a little quirky. Yeah. It, it throws around a lot, and even even the beginning, and, and no offense to Brie Larson, but I initially was not sold on her playing this part in the very beginning. Oh God, no! I was not at all. No, I was starting. I to thought this was going to be a very horrible rendition of Captain Marvel, and that this was going to be the first true goose egg, in my opinion, of the series. And what's funny is, too, when the movie when the movie starts and it's going along the first half hour, you're almost feeling like she may have been miscast. Yeah. And it was a feeling that I have never had watching a Marvel movie before, so I was really frightened with the rest of this movie going forward that this is not good. And that's interesting. You know, but as the movie goes along, I start to buy into her more, she becomes more likable, and by the time we get to the end, you start believing her more so to be Captain Marvel. Okay. Um... So I know since you haven't seen it, um, I guess I can talk a little bit more about it considering I've seen it. But you can tell me if it follows things from the comic pretty closely. Um, 
Starting with the development of the movie, uh, in May of 2013, there was a script out there, um, but again, it didn't go anywhere, because at this time, there wasn't really many strong female characters in the Marvel Universe. We were just starting to get Black Widow, you know, in Iron Man 2. Uh, I mean, of course, there was Pepper Potts and Peggy Carter, but they were strong female characters, but they weren't... <sighs> Marvel at this time wasn't known for its strong female characters. Uh, yeah, that's to be given, though. I mean, a lot of it's been all, you know, the super male, the male superhero-based. Right, and I think, I think they were smart, because at that time, I don't know if Captain Marvel would have worked then. Mm-hmm. Because um, it was still very early on. And, you know, we didn't really get any movement on Captain Marvel um, until around uh, 2015, 2016. Uh, there were a lot of discussions with different directors and different writers. Didn't go anywhere. And really it wasn't until April of 2016 that they announced a director and cast members and that the movie was actually finally getting going to be made. Um so in the big scheme of things, you know, uh, I know there was a lot of people that weren't sold on Brie Larson, like we said about being cast. I think she had the overall look of Captain Marvel, but it was the question of her, I don't want to challenge her acting ability because I've seen her and stuff. She's even got nominated, I believe, for an Academy Award a couple of years ago for the movie Room. And then she went and played in Kong Skull Island, which I liked her part in that very much. So I was okay with her playing this part, but um, there was a lot of division there. Uh, but one of the big things in this movie that really uh, I didn't know was going to work was they were going to have to de-age Sam Jackson to do Nick Fury. Mm -hmm. And um, as you know, looking at past movies that have de-aged people, it hasn't always looked the best. Yeah. So how are they going to sell a big character doing this? So I'm happy to say that the movie, that Sam Jackson looks like he did almost in Pulp Fiction. They, they perfected it. He looks young as hell in this movie, and it doesn't look fake. Okay. Um, I can't say the same for Agent Coulson. They de-aged him as well. Um, sadly, I was able to see some of the flaws in the effects there. But um, all in all, it was done really well with that as well. Um, but the movie does a great job bridging itself into where we're going now with Avengers Endgame. Especially, we also learn how Nick Fury lost his eye, and it happens to be that a cat scratched it out. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that at all. Of all the ways he could lose the lose the fucking eye, that's how he loses it. So, uh, you want to hear some interesting, you know, little trivia about Captain Marvel? Yeah, shoot. Carol Danvers wasn't the original Captain Marvel. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, Captain Marvel in the comics originally debuted in Marvel Super Heroes number 12 in... 67. Okay. Back then, though, the character was a male Kree soldier named Marvel. Ah, uh, which ended up becoming. Who'd been sent to Earth yeah. to observe humankind, only to end up defending them from evil threats. Mm hmm. Okay, now Marvel. Marvel is in the movie. The only difference is Marvel in the movie ends up being played by. Uh, ah, shit, what's, what the hell's her name? God, I'm drawing a fucking blank. Oh, and that Benning plays Marvell, who was actually Dr. Wendy Lawson, who ends up being the person that ends up getting named for Captain Marvel. Captain mm -hmm. Marvel is getting named after her because she was kind of her protege, in a way. 
with the whole Air Force. All right. That's interesting, though. That's interesting that it was like that. But I can understand, and I can kind of understand and see that, why that was the way it is. Yeah. But um, overall, yeah, Captain Marvel was still a good a good piece of the Marvel Universe. Um, but it might be really the first Marvel movie I can really say that the first half hour had its problems. I can't say that about many other Marvel movies. So I'm hoping that's not going to be a trend going forward with these other ones beyond Endgame. So I want to hear your opinion on this. We'll get back to the rest of the uh, movies here in a minute. Where do you think that she's going to fit into the MCU here, like, for Endgame? Where's she going to fit in the big picture? Yeah, where's Captain Marvel going to fit in here? Well, I mean, based upon the post-credit sequence where she finally shows up from Nick Fury's beeper. Um, she seems to have a pretty good dynamic with Thor based upon what we've seen from the Avengers Endgame trailer and stuff like that. I'm almost sensing maybe a possible Thor-Captain Marvel hookup. I, I, I'm just throwing it out there. I, I think they have something that might be working there. Um, I don't know if all of them are going to work together well with her based upon kind of her cockiness, which shows big time in Captain Marvel. Um, I see her getting along with some. So I think there's going to be a little bit of tension there and a little bit of division there between the Avengers, I think, is how she's going to kind of fit into the mold of things. This is how I see her fitting in. Okay. Well, yeah, her powers are going to be key to defeating Thanos in Endgame. I personally believe, as well as a lot of people that I know believe that her main purpose in the MCU is to set up the next big saga in the MCU. Basically phase phase four, four and yeah. beyond. Mm -hmm. Is to set up a secret invasion adaptation. Because it seems like this is the next logical step uh, based on evidence that's been presented to us. Because if you look at the movie itself and from the comics... Uh, or looking through, like, the Secret Invasion storyline in the comics, mm -hmm. uh, and the Skrulls use their ability to infiltrate human society in a bid to take over the world under everyone's nose. So so what you're basically saying is probably going to happen is... The leader, who is the main villain in Captain Marvel, by the way? Jude Law's character, which was... What was his name? Because from uh, what I see here... Rog. Jan Rog was his name. Because I have here Talos. Uh, Talos, the Tal main villain in the Captain Marvel movie. I mean, there is a big boss in the scheme of things for the Kree, but Jan Rog was, was the main villain. I mean, I... Talos, the main villain in the Captain Marvel movie is a scrawl. So the signs are there that the aliens may have landed in their masses and are simply biding their time. Okay, so Talos... Which, looking at it here, well, before you get into that, so in the... Like, going on here, Captain Marvel and all the other Avengers are more worried about dealing with Thanos right now and trying to reverse everything that had happened. Or take him out once and for all. Her attention's focused elsewhere. She can't focus on that. Because in the comics, she's one of Marvel's strongest heroes. Right. And, you know, in order to feed him, they might need 
a powerful artifact like the gauntlet, such as the Mkran crystal or the cosmic cube. Okay. If anyone can access them, it would probably be Captain Marvel. All of their attention's drawn one way. While well, something else is going on in the big scheme of things. The scrolls could be doing their invasion as we speak right now. We would have no idea. So, what I think her biggest role in this adaptation mm -hmm. is going to be introducing us to this whole new story going forward from now on. So what you basically mean is like when phase one through three were was the Infinity Stones and Thanos, that's going to be your next maybe phase four through six that's going to lead you through three more Avengers movies is the big picture of yeah. the story. That makes sense. I mean, that would be a good way to do it, especially since she's supposed to be launching you into the next big phases. Um, I did forget who Talos was. Talos was the main villain, but he was the smokescreen main villain. He ended up actually being a good guy that his motivation was not what they thought it was. It looked like that he was trying to destroy the Kree and this and that, but really he was just trying to, to save his people. And that's why Jan Rog was trying to kill him because the Kree wanted to eliminate them. So Talos actually was the smokescreen villain and ended up being a good guy by the end of this movie. Now, that's not to say that that doesn't change later. But all this is leading into the biggest thing with the Kree and the Skrull. It makes sense. I, I and definitely we are see that. going to be seeing a at, we're going to be seeing a Secret Invasions adaptation finally. Yeah, I I, pro I probably can agree that the, that the next Avengers movie after Endgame with these new people that'll probably be the overall story of what it's about or what we're leading into big picture things. What was cool about this movie too is is yeah. that we had two somewhat smaller parts of two people that were in Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, Dijamon Hanzu returns as Korath, which we oh, saw... Thank in, you. I'm in, glad to hear that. Yeah, he, he returns. Uh, as you know, we first saw him at his... Uh, at kind of the leader of a group in Guardians mm -hmm. uh, when we attacked Quill at the very beginning. But in this movie, he's kind of at his... Infancy. That's what Dijamon Hanzu called Karath in this movie, that he's kind of his infancy here. He's a part of the core group, and you kind of see that he's really starting out in this film, leading into what he'll become in Guardians. And then also Lee Pace returns as Ronan, as we know as the villain from Guardians, who ultimately ends up dying in Guardians. But we don't see him as a radical zealot here yet. He's kind of starting out. He has all these warships that Captain Marvel takes out in one big flying swoop, yeah. and he zooms away like a little bitch only to become what we know from Guardians. So that those were two cool characters I didn't expect to be thrown in here, um, which was a nice little nod to Guardians. So, okay, that's good to hear. So, yeah, overall, Captain Marvel. Yeah, I mean, there you go. So uh, now this leads us into... Truth is, I am Iron Man. Iron Man. The first movie that launched the entire MCU. Yeah. This was the one... Back in 2008. This was the one that launched this whole thing. If this movie doesn't succeed, we have none of it. Well, it wasn't even a matter of that, because I don't think they had any idea, like, this is the line they were going to be going down originally when they did this. No. But it's a matter of, once they saw the success that Iron Man had, they're like, let's greenlight a sequel. 
And once they saw just how successful like the rest of these movies ended up becoming, why not turn this into the storyline that people have wanted to see? And that's seeing Thanos and the Infinity Stone story. Well, the post credit sequence in Iron Man 1 showed us what the intent was with the whole Nick Fury and the Avengers thing. But if you notice, too, if, if anybody doesn't know this, Phase 1 is the only one that has two or has a sequel in it. Um, Iron Man and Iron Man 2 were released in Phase 1. Yeah. It's the only series to have a sequel released in the same phase. And they were only two years apart. And the only movie we got in between this was Incredible Hulk before Thor 1 after, Thor, after Iron Man 2. Yeah. So at this time, you know, we knew the intent... But they didn't know that if it was going to work in the big picture of things. I know, oh, there no. were, I know there were a lot of doubts if Thor as a movie was going to work because look at how Green Lantern up and failed, right? And what, why did Green Lantern fail with Ryan Reynolds? Because the visual effects were dog shit. And Thor was going to involve a lot of special effects to create Asgard, and I think they were concerned that that might pose the same problem. So there was a gamble there. Now it worked, but I can see where the concern might have been. Oh, I know. All right, so let's get into... Iron Man. Yeah. Let's relive some nostalgia here. Well, first of all, let's comment. There is nobody that could play Tony Stark better than Robert Downey Jr. He is the definitive Tony Stark. Yeah, and uh, we were just going on about this before we started this podcast, Mike. Guess who had an uncredited script polish uh, role for writing? An uncredited? Mm-hmm. J.J. Abrams. Of course he did. The guy is a master writer. That 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 to me is not the least bit shocking, but I did not know that. I was more surprised looking at this on who directed it of all people, John Favreau. John Favreau's movie before this was Elf. So who would have thought in the big scheme of things that he could That really Iron Man? he was the one that started this whole thing. This whole MCU with the, how he directed this film. He's the, he's the bookend star. Let me let me correct myself here. So before he directed Iron Man, John Favreau only had three movies to his credit. He had a movie called Made in two thousand one. Elf was two thousand three, and Zathura: A Space Adventure in two thousand five. Who would have thought this guy could take the Marvel universe, start it up, and do what he did? Well, let's look at it even more here. Who would have thought that? Robert Downey Jr. would have been able to get another big role in Hollywood after all the legal trouble that he had had. Drugs, everything. He and him maker. finally, and him getting a chance to do this role. See, because the, by all means, this wasn't looking like this was going to be a good movie at all leading up to all this. Well, not based upon, you know, what what, what we thought it was going to be. When, we, when this first came out, we thought it was just your standard superhero movie about, you know, Iron Man. We, we didn't know how this would go in the big scheme of things. So, yeah, when the movie yeah. came out, I mean, it was just another superhero movie. It wasn't anything big. I was really happy with uh, the direction of this film, and this really reignited uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s career. Oh, God, yeah, because you think about after this, he went on to do, you know, Sherlock Holmes and a lot of other big movies. I mean, this turned him into the definitive Hollywood star, the go-to guy to hire for box office gold. Yeah. And now, uh, what really caught my interest with this film that I honestly didn't even realize until a few years ago, actually, because it had been a few years since I had last watched Iron the original Iron Man, mm -hmm. uh, before I ended up 
going through and watching again after the second uh, Avengers film, mm-hmm. I forgot that Jeff Bridges actually played Obadiah Stane in this. Yeah, isn't that hard to believe? Especially since you're not used to seeing Jeff Bridges with a bald head. Yeah. And not to mention the whole issue, drama, whatever you want to call it, with uh, Terrence Howard originally playing uh, Rhodey in this film and it being switched over to uh, Don Cheadle. Well, yeah, that was also, I guess that was all due to salary issues, I guess. I, I guess that's why he didn't get brought back, which Terrence Howard, I'm sorry, I like you as an actor, but you made a big fucking mistake here. I agree. Uh, he played Rhodey really well in this film. He could have done even bigger things with this role than uh, Cheadle did. Well, yeah, think of it. In this movie, they hinted him becoming Warhammer when he looks at the, the, the suit and he goes, next time, baby. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he fucked up. Terrence Howard fucked up. He he could have been in this Marvel Universe going forward making a shitload of money, getting his career even more so. Yeah, he's on Empire, he's doing well for himself, but he could have been doing even better, making more money, becoming a more high-profile star, becoming maybe a leading man in some movies other than Marvel. But see, he's stuck doing TV right now when he could have been doing big movies. Big mistake. But, I mean... Hey, it's it is what it is. The events that led up to it led us to the cast that we have today. Right, and Don Cheadle plays the part very well. Nothing to take away. I, from I can't, all. I can't say that this is anything bad at all here. No, I mean no, I mean it. It uh, Terrence Howard played it well here. Don Cheadle took the role over in Iron Man Two and played it just as well, and he's done just fine going forward. Yeah. So it's not a big loss. I just think Terrence Howard personally made a big mistake, and I wonder if he looks back on it now and regrets it. Um, now, this film was actually back in development in 1990 at Universal Pictures, 20th Century Fox, and New Line Cinema at various times before Marvel acquired the rights in 06, and then Marvel put it on the fast track to finance the film themselves, which was the first one ever, with Paramount being the distributor. Which was a huge thing to hear at the time, that Marvel was actually... Doing this properly themselves. Doing this themselves. Yeah. Yeah, it's huge. Huge. I mean, can you imagine how this movie would have turned out if it just would have gotten Like you say, Fox got their hands on it? Say if anyone else had gotten their hands on it? To be fair, Fox has only done one good superhero series right that I've liked, and that's X-Men. That's about it. Yeah, I know. You're going to go into how the whole comics thing and the whole big scheme of things is, and I understand that. No, no. Not even that. What's wrong with those movies? Summarized in two words. X3. Yeah, that was the by far the worst film, and they made up for those when they did First Class, Days of Future Past, and Apocalypse. Yeah, I don't think they had really had any influence on those movies at that point. Days of Future yeah, Past. Yeah, it may yeah. have been it may have been under the Fox moniker, but let's face it, they really didn't have any say in Jack and shit at that point because of how bad they fucked up. The original trilogy. Well, the thing of it is, too, X-Men 3 got fucked up because Brian Singer, who was the brainchild of X-1 and X-2, up and left them high and dry to go do Superman Returns, and we all know who that how that turned out. Big mistake on his part because he ended up coming back to the X-Men franchise anyway. Yeah. You know, and that's part of the reason why X-3 got fucked up because the brainchild left, they brought in uh, Brett Ratner to direct it, which was a huge fucking mistake. Oh, I know. And I don't know who polished the script for X3, but they fucked up so much shit. They fucked up Dark Phoenix. 
which, uh, which they're now which they're that. now fixing now with this new movie coming out hopefully. So we'll see. But all in all, Fox's track record, minus some X Men stuff, has been has been shit. I mean, Fantastic Four was too cheesy and off off script. You know, then there's Daredevil. We know how that went. Um, that had potential. That had so one? much potential. Daredevil. Daredevil. Well, that had so much potential, and they screwed it up. But they did screw it up. I mean, I don't know why Fox has a hard time making superhero movies. I mean, you know, it seems like they could only get one somewhat right, so I don't know what was the problem otherwise. Uh, who knows at this point. But uh, So they didn't do it. Um, Favreau was signed on as director. He chose to f- shoot the film in California, and filming began in March of 07. But here's something that nobody probably knows. During filming... The actors were free to create their own dialogue because pre-production was focused on the story and the action. Which was a very, very good decision on their part. Well, it, it, it definitely shows that it might have been a very strong choice. Because look at what Robert Downey did in that film. Look at how he made Tony Stark in the MCU what it is. Well, his, his his performance of Tony Stark is so, I, th- I think, real because I think there's a lot of... Like, he embodies the aspect of what <laughs> what Tony Stark is. Well, think of it. A lot of, his, a lot of Tony Stark is basically Downey embodying himself. You know, uh, Tony's got a drinking problem. You know, he uh, he likes to be the, the cocky, I'm the, I'm the be-all, see-all yeah. thing guy. This is the way Downey was. And I think he saw a little bit of himself in this role, and he took a little bit of it, put a little bit of himself into, into acting it, and I think that's why it's basically downright perfect. And the critics even agreed with it, too. They praised him in all the reviews for the movie that it was his performance was just spectacular. Oh, I know. Um, but, all right, so let's go ahead and break down the actual film plot-wise. I'm sure everyone's seen it, but we might as well. Well, the movie begins with a bang. I mean, we're, we open up right in the Middle I mean, East. Quite literally. Yeah. Well, yeah. Quite literally. Uh, we open in the Middle East. Uh, a lot of explosions going off. All the different cars being blown up. And then we get the uh, the shrapnel that gets launched into his chest. Yeah, because there was a ambush that happened that uh, had caused the convoy, you know, to essentially go up. Right. In flames, and, you know, shrapnel had hit Tony, critically wounding him, but, you know, after he got uh, brought and held captive by uh, the that terrorist group Ten Rings, mm-hmm. it was the, you know, it was the other f- captive that was in there, that doctor, uh, that he built an electromagnet that he put into Tony's chest. That uh, had, you know, kept that shrapnel from reaching his heart and killing him. Well, yeah. Uh, he meets uh, Yinzen in, 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 the, uh, in the cavern, and he helps him build the suit. And, 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 and the, uh, well, Yinzen's responsible for the, for the chest, you know, thing that saved Tony's life with the, with the car battery and stuff. And Tony just takes that creation and makes something bigger of it. Yeah. Um, and, the, and, the, and the interesting thing here is, too, when you're watching the movie... Uh, Raza, who's the leader of the Ten Rings, I mean, really, for the first half of this movie, he looks like he's just going to be the villain. I mean, he basically is the villain of the movie for the first half. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it isn't until Obadiah is revealed to be responsible for Tony being captured that that changes everything. Which, by the way, was a really was a, was was what was a good twist. But when you look at the movie and you see Jeff Bridges, you can't help but think. He's got to be playing the bad guy when you're watching the movie. I, yeah, just looking at him, like he had that villain vibe about him. Well, even look at the film's uh, poster. Look at the facial expression yeah. on his face. I mean, it looks villain-esque. So, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, so, yeah, it's not shocking, but Jeff Bridges is Jeff Bridges, so never to knock him. He plays the role also very, very well. Oh, I know. Um, then... We get to, let's see here, we get to where Stan had found the old suit and everything. really wasn't so much that as it was, you know, uh, we get shown how Stan's working on remodeling that suit. His scientists are working on uh, remodeling Tony's old suit and everything, Mm -hmm. but they can't finish it because... They can't duplicate the arc reactor that Stark had built. Right, and it's funny because Obadiah makes that joke. He goes, you know, Tony built this thing in a cave, and you can't take the technology and harness it. And the guy says, I'm not Tony Stark. You know, you can't take Tony Stark's technology and make somebody else do it. Yeah. I mean, Obadiah, you're not Tony Stark, so, you know, go fuck yourself. So what ended up happening instead was that... uh. He ambushed Stark in his home and paralyzed him using a sonic device and took his arc reactor. Yep. You know, Tony being left to die and everything, he somehow managed to get back to his lab and saved himself by reusing the original uh, arc reactor that he had. Yeah, and, he, and, and not only that, too, he the, the suit that he rebuilds, I mean, he builds a pretty big damn ass suit i mean it's huge it's like it's like twice the size of uh the original suit it looks like it anyway yeah uh you know uh pepper Potts had uh and you know several other shield agents uh like tried to arrest him but he put on the suit and attacked them stark fought him but outmatched with his new reactor to run the, his suit at full capacity. Right. Which is where you see the lore of Stain being the Iron Monger. Right. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And, and, and you know, um, in that sequence, too, uh, you know, I, I couldn't help but think. Uh, you know, Jeff Bridges is the villain at this point, and this and that, blah 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 blah. But um, the way that scene plays out, which by the way, this is Agent Coulson's first appearance, mm-hmm. uh, which is which is really cool. He plays in the big thing and everything. But um, it's very reminiscent of uh, uh, I, I think of um, Obadiah's suit as almost Hulk-like. It's almost like Iron Man fighting the Hulk in a way. Mm. I think it seems more like what we'd see for War Machine than Hulk. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that makes a little more sense. But, you know, getting into the end sequence here and everything, uh, Stark in his uh, armor suit flies up to the top of Stark Industries, luring Stane up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, he instructed... 
pots to overload that large arc reactor that was up there uh, when they had reached the top. It unleashed a massive electrical surge that knocked Stain unconscious and made him fall, made him and his armor to fall uh, into the exploding reactor, which killed him. Yeah, well, yeah, Obadiah didn't plan for that, see, whereas Tony, you know, planned for the going up into high altitude with his new suit. That's yeah. something that Obadiah did not, you know, plan on, and it backfired on him. And, you know, the next day, they, Dave, this is where we finally hear, you know, all the press, all the news and everything dubbing Star, uh, dubbing Stark <coughs> at this time, which they had no idea that him as Iron Man. No, they built it as a military accident at the facility, which, you know, that's typical government bullshit. And, um, you know, the press has dubbed the armor hero Iron Man. And it's also... The only, I think, superhero movie ever to reveal where the where the lead guy reveals to everybody who he is, and what a shocking way to end this movie. Just him announced that I am Iron Man, and that's just yeah, I know because it was at a press conference. Like Stark sitting there, be, uh, he's beginning to give the cover story, but then he's like, you know what? Tosses okay. the cards, pretty much said fucking, then says I'm Iron Man, that's and it cuts right there because you hear. Ozzy Osbourne playing Iron Man right then and there to end it. And then you get the after credits scene to start them all. Afterwards, S.H.I.E.L.D. director Nick Fury visits Stark at home, noting that Iron Man is not the only superhero in the world, saying how he wants to discuss the Avengers initiative. And here we go with that, as we learn that that's pretty much what their big plan of the big picture of things, basically. I don't think anyone realized that it was going to get as big as it did. Maybe they had planned at first, you know, for like a five or six film run. Yeah, they knew what they wanted to do. But but 21 films later, and we're finally hitting the end of the MCU. You know, uh... It really is mind-blowing when you go back and look, you know, 11 or 11 years ago and seeing that what this has become in 11 years. And this is the movie that did it. This is the movie that launched it with, you know, Downey, Favreau, you know, these guys made this what this is. And they, yeah, they are really owed did. a lot of the credit, a lot of the credit for this. Actually, I think more than anybody else, other than Kevin Feig, of course, but they are owed a lot of the credit for getting this thing forward. They really are. Um... I, f- I found a couple little interesting notes about the movie before we move on to the next movie here. Um, come to find out that uh, many of Obadiah Stane's scenes were actually cut out of the movie to focus more on Stark, but the writers felt that Bridges' performance allowed the application of less is more. So there are actually yeah. no more scenes of him. And then also, too, uh, director John Favreau wanted Pepper Potts and Stark's relationship to be reminiscent of a 1940s comedy Something which Gwyneth Paltrow considered to be fun in a innocent yet sexy kind of way, which was a nice touch. I, it had that sort of feel to it. It did, it and did. I liked it a lot. Also, note that uh, Paul Bettany voices Jarvis here, which is the the lead into um, <clears throat> Vision. So uh, this is also where you get a little bit of a taste of what's to come with all that as well. So, yeah, so let's go into the next one, which was Iron Man 2. Sir, I'm going to have to ask you to exit the donut. 
Yeah, this is what's funny about uh, going into another uh, Iron Man here. Um, like we said before, you know, it's the only phase to have a sequel yeah. within the phase. And um, this is where some people had some issues with Iron Man 2 because they felt like they were focusing too much on launching what the Avengers was going to be. And I can understand that. I mean, there is some subplots within the movie where they focus a little too much on that. And, well, I can uh, understand that, but I thought that they did a great job doing this. Well, of course they did. Of course they did. I mean, it's still a great movie. I think the movie got a little too heavily criticized for that. Um, yeah, it really did. It didn't warrant the criticism that it got. No, I think people overreacted a little too much on that. I think when you go back and look at it now especially, you won't see it as that as much as you back did no, back then. No, God, no. No, I think it was different back then. Um, now, this is what I found to be kind of mind-blowing to me when this movie was coming out. This movie, and I don't know if you know who he is, but this movie was written by uh, Justin Thoreau. Mm-hmm. And I know Justin Thoreau from acting in Charlie's Angels Full Throttle. He was the bad guy. He was the boyfriend of Drew Barrymore. That's right. That's right. And when I found out that he wrote this movie, I'm like, seriously, what the fuck? Yeah. I, I did not think that, A, this guy was a writer. I didn't know how he was going to handle it. But then I went back and looked and saw that he actually also wrote Tropic Thunder. Okay. And I was like... Okay, so he wrote a legitimate movie that was really, really good. So And then he wrote a comedy called Tropic Thunder. Yeah. I mean he after Iron Man Two he went on to write, you know, um movies like Your Highness with James Franco and Natalie Portman, A Rock of Ages, sadly uh <clears throat> uh, uh Zoolander Two. We don't talk about that. No, no, um no. Actually he didn't write Your Highness of Wonderlust, I'm sorry. He also he helped write Rock of Ages and then helped write Zoolander Two. But Zoolander Two was complete dog shit so I won't even comment on that but um yeah but, so, uh, it was a surprise yeah let's get back into Iron Man 2 here uh, uh once again directed by Favreau glad they did glad they got him back and not only that he reprised his role as Happy Hogan I love Happy Hogan I, who didn't I love the fact that he's in Spider-Man Homecoming I know that's great that I I'm not gonna lie. I cl I clapped my ass off and laughed when I saw Happy Hogan in Homecoming. Especially that first trailer when the first scene was Happy Hogan and Spider-Man in first person. That was great. Oh, I know. I love it, and I'm I'm hoping he's in Spider-Man Two, maybe someplace too as well. I don't know. We'll see. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the biggest inclusions in this though that I loved was well, obviously we got Don Cheadle playing. Uh, Colonel James Rhodes. Bye-bye, Terrence. Who, yeah, replaced him in this. And it was the inclusion of Mickey Rourke and Scarlett Johansson playing the roles that they did. Yeah, the first appearance from Mickey Black Widow. Mickey Rourke playing Ivan Vanko. Which, again, Mickey Whiplash. Rourke plays it masterfully. Oh, my God. I could not have pictured anyone else playing that role. He, he... <laughs> He, 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 in a way, it's reminiscent of Downey with Tony Stark, how he embodied it. He embodied Whiplash. Oh, God, yeah. From the prison scenes, to the scenes where he's building the suit, to yeah. his scenes on the track when he's taken down and beating the shit out of Iron Man. I mean, it's great. And then you've got Scarlett Johansson playing Black Widow. Mm. And there's... Calm down. Mm. 
<laughs> oh, okay, There's... I speak for every guy when I go, mm. Shut up. You're not wrong, but shut up. But, no, the biggest thing we have to look at with this is that... Could you have ever pictured her originally playing this role? Black Widow? Yeah. She never came to mind. I mean, when I, when, I, when I saw... I mean, I didn't know who Black Widow really was on the movie, so, I mean, I took it for what it is. But, I mean, I wouldn't have thought Scarlett Johansson would be in a superhero movie. Well, at least not as a side character. Yeah. Um, but I, I liked the character. I thought it was interesting. And I thought, you know, it's going to be really cool to see more of her backstory, which we're going to finally find out in her own Black Widow movie coming up here. Finally. Yeah, I know. I'm really happy and looking forward to that. But uh, the biggest thing I'm trying to take away from this is, could you have pictured anyone else playing this role? At this point now, probably not. Because there's a couple out there, but it's just a matter of, you know, who could pull it off the way that Scarlett Johansson has pulled off this role? Who are the other two? Hmm? Who are the other two you think might have been able to pull it off? At this point, I just kind of blocked them out of memory because I just... You just want to see her as the... It, it, I can't picture anyone else really playing this well, role it's anymore. Hard. It's hard to do. I mean, and I, you know, it's funny, too, because, you know, I wonder how Gwyneth Paltrow felt like Scarlett Johansson was taking some of her female thunder in this movie. She was no longer the uh, the hottest female lead in the movie anymore. Mm-hmm. Still a little bit of that thunder, but... uh. Uh, surprise addition to the cast here as well is Sam Rockwell. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you look at a lot of his parts, especially, and a lot of them are very comedic or, or you know, just the whole suave thing. But, you know, him playing Justin Hammer, a rival weapons manufacturer to Stark Industries, uh, he plays a good good foe to, to Tony Stark because, in a way, they're kind of similar to each other. They're kind of both bullheaded, and they think very highly of themselves as well. Mm-hmm. But um, him going as far as hiring, uh, you know, uh, Vanko is man. Well, how about this? Saying you've got the beginning of the film, the beginning part of this, you know, how in Ru- you've got in Russia, the national media is televising the news conference in which he's revealed that uh, his identity is Iron Man to the world. Right. During this, a sick Anton Vanko dies in the arms of his son, Ivan Vanko, telling him that the only thing he has left to leave him is his knowledge, which turns out to be blueprints for the arc reactor. Mm-hmm. And yep. also tells his son that he has every right to success that Tony Stark and his family has gained, which motivates uh, Ivan to seek revenge on Stark. It's a good revenge story. Yeah, so go ahead and take it from here. What else did you take from this film? Um, like, what are some key points in this film that you thought? Well, you know, seeing seeing Tony kind of go through um, a little bit of a downfall, the declining health with the arc reactor in his chest, um, I thought kind of almost humanized Tony a little bit. Because I think after Iron Man 1, I think he was a little high on himself. You know, I, I'm Iron Man, I got this suit, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm a, in a sense a god. I don't want to say god, but like a god-like thing. Yeah. And this movie really brings him back down to earth, and I think really humanizes him going forward. It gives him a little more of a conscience. 
Uh, I think it, it, it makes his relationships with the other characters around him stronger. Why and do you I, say that? Well, I think he had to go through this in order to make his relationship with the Avengers work. Okay. Um, because I think that if he wouldn't have gone through something that made him more human, he okay. wouldn't have been able to relate to them or relate to humanity in the, in the big sense of the picture. Okay. So. I love how, you know, uh, start return home, Jarvis confirmed that the toxic levels of his blood have risen, uh, that the palladium that is powering the arc reactor, keeping the shrapnel from reaching his heart, you know, killing him. Right. There aren't any other suitable replacements. You got Stark thinking that he's going to die. He makes Pepper Potts the CEO of Stark Industries. Ballsy move. And makes Natalie Rushman his new assistant. Who wouldn't want her to be your assistant, I'm just saying. There'd be a lot of problems with the... Yeah, and then this is where you get uh, the Grand Prix. We hit the scene at the Grand Prix. Uh, Stark takes out the Formula One driver who's representing Stark Industries... Uh, you know, he drives it himself because he wants some enjoyment before he dies. Yeah, he figures at this point he's going to die, so he might as well go out with a bang. Yeah, and but it's at this point, little, it's this race is going on, when Whiplash hits the track. This is a great sequence because I'll tell you, Stark gets the shit kicked out of him. Oh, yeah. But, you know, this leads to Vonko, you know, getting getting arrested, thrown in jail. But that later leads to Justin Hammer getting him out because he wants his own brand of Iron Man suits and get his revenge on Stark by tarnishing his name and his image. Yeah, so then we get to where, you know, uh, Vonko's broken out of jail by Justin Hammer who right. recruits him to help make his own Iron Man suits and gains revenge on Stark by tarnishing Correct. his yeah, name and image. Yeah, yeah right. Right, and, uh, you know, this leads to sequences with Stark throwing a birthday party. He's drunk. Uh, it's a rowdy thing. He's destroying his house. Um, it's not good because he's endangering all of his party guests with these suits and this, and this thing, and he's creating a whole a whole public, you know, uh, PR fiasco for the military because, you know, Rhodes is stuck up for him with this armor in the military. They didn't think he should have it. And by doing this, he is showing his recklessness, and he's showing that Rhodey basically was wrong and makes him look like an ass. Yeah. You know, and, you know, Stark throws what we all, what he thought and we all thought was, you know, going to be his last big birthday. Right. And he proceeds to get drunk while wearing the Mark IV armor. That's uh, When Stark begins endangering the guests and everything uh, by blasting objects out of the air, you, this is where you see James Rhodes putting on the Mark II armor to subdue him. Well, yeah, and you know, this is this just shows this really the, sees the it, beginning of War Machine here. Yeah, this is this is this the you know the irresponsibility of, of Tony. Um, he's he's finally proving everybody right that he's not responsible enough to have this stuff. And you know, yeah, he's going through problems, going through death, but he's making everybody else around him basically fall down with him. Yeah, and this leads to you know Nick Fury having to get involved. With Tony where and the big you donut. see where, you know, he's approached by Fury and Rushman. We we actually find out is Natasha Romanov. Yeah, we learn that Natasha is actually working for for Shield. That her being his assistant was all one big cover to keep an eye on him. 
which not surprising considering I think ScarJo is a lot more than just your typical assistant. I think she had to have a, a bigger role in all this. Oh yeah. Um, but as the movie goes through, it's it's, it's motions. Uh, we find a little bit more. But about, uh, you um, know, they provide him a box of his father's old research that you know was hoping to be there's going to be something in there to help find a cure for his po- for his uh, palladium poisoning. Right, right. You know, this leads to sequences, seeing Tony's father, and we see some old videos uh, and, and different things. Um, this leads to him creating an arc, an arc, a new arc reactor that cures us poisoning, and now we have to... Well, it's not really an arc reactor, so it's a particle accelerator. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a uh, form of... With the aid of Jarvis and synthesizes this new element creating a new perfected arc reactor that cures the palladium poisoning. Mm-hmm. So after he uh, gets rid of the thing, we go back to the Stark Expo. We're led to, you know, our big final act again with him finding out about Hammer involved with, with Vanko and, and uh, you know, he unveils the new military drones, which are captained by Rhodes in a heavily weaponized version of the confiscated Mark II armor. In, in, in Vanko, you know, he did his own things to the device that Hammer didn't know about, and he rigs them to, you know, do terrible things. That uh, leads to a big battle between Vanko and Tony and all the other bots and stuff like that. And, you know, just to rush things up, Vanko, of course, is taken down. No, oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, and that leads to uh, Pepper quitting the CEO job because she doesn't want to be involved in this anymore. And, hey, her and Tony finally... You know, they finally the get relationship. their relationship going here. Right. Uh, uh, added to briefing, Fury informed Stark that, you know, while he's unsuitable for the <laughs> Avengers initiative, uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. wants Iron Man as a consultant. <laughs> yeah, as a consultant. Stark agrees on the condition that Senator Stern present him and Colonel Rhodes with medals for their bravery. Uh, meanwhile, Coulson is seen driving to a remote impact crater in the New Mexico desert. Our post-credit sequence leading into Thor. Over a phone, he informs Fury that they've found it, with it being revealed to be... The hammer. The hammer of Thor. So at this point now, we know that, well, we're getting our Thor movie, and how is that going to end up? Which leads us... Not quite to Thor yet, Sorry. This leads us to the Incredible Hulk. Any last words? Hulk! Smash! Okay. Yes, it does. And this... This is where people are kind of divided. There's a lot of division here with this Hulk film. In fact, there's really... More so leaning to one side than the other. Yeah, there's been a... If you look at the huge, if you, the the the, um, the past of Hulk films, and the, it, nobody's really ever been completely. No happy one's with ever that. done a good Hulk film. Right. And I am gonna go out here and just say this now. This was one of my favorites out of the entire Phase One. See, that's very surprising to me. Um, I, I like. And the, that is based off of. Edward Norton's acting alone. His one and only. 
his one and only performance in the Marvel Universe, and it's, and it's sad because um, I would have liked to have seen what he would have done with with Bruce Banner and Hulk going forward. Oh, I know. Um, it's why it's really disappointing that things ended up the way they did. Not, not taking anything away from Mark Ruffalo. I mean, I mean, for God's sake, Norton helped pen this film. Now, here, here's the kicker with this, and I'll tell you where a lot of the Marvel stuff came into play here. Um, Norton helped write the script, but now the problem here is is that he is not credited in the credits. Zach Penn is given the only credit in the credits for writing this script, and that is because when the film was being edited, they had a long, I guess, two, two or about a two-and-a-half-hour cut of the movie, mm-hmm. and... Norton was heavily involved in, in, in the editing process to make the movie. And Marvel came in, the producers, and they said, we want to cut this movie down to under two hours. The running time was apparently near 135 minutes. Um, Edward Norton and the director, Louis Latier, they disputed with the producers over the final runtime, and the producers kept forcing, no, under two hours. They wanted almost 20 minutes of the film cut. So Edward Norton got pissed. He didn't like the final product, and he said, if this is the way it's going to be, I don't want a relationship with Marvel, and I'm walking away. Yeah. I mean, as a filmmaker myself, I can kind of understand where they were pissed off about this, because if you look at the movie, I've watched the deleted scenes. There was a lot of backstory that really would have helped make this movie better. Yeah, I agree. And... For Marvel to cut that stuff, it's very surprising, considering even like after this movie, how you look at their DVDs, there's not much in the way of I think I can see it also from the producer's standpoint here, because if you look at the pattern of how the other movies had turned out, because this was, this is what, the second uh, movie that came out in the MCU, correct? Um... I believe so. Uh, no, no. Um, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, it came out right before Iron Man 2. Yeah, because this was the second movie that came out. It came out in 2008, like not long after uh, Iron Man 1 had come out. Right, yeah, it was maybe maybe uh, quite a f- maybe a few months, I'd like to say. But I think what they were trying to do was they were trying to test the waters on you know, what is going to make for the best kind of runtime for a Marvel film. Well, it makes sense. I mean, I know it was early on, maybe they were concerned about it being too bloated, and then... The, you know, uh, you know they, did, they really wanted to, you know, not make all of their movies as long as they ended up becoming. Yeah, but what's funny? And they realized the mistakes that they made, so which led us to seeing the length that we've had for all the other films after this one. Yeah. yeah. So really, it's, it's a matter of that you never really heard a true apology to Norton from for this mm-hmm. because it was ultimately because of their decision that Edward Norton got what he wanted in the end, and that was them being the feature length that they are today. Well, the, the downside is that they lost Edward Norton because of this, and, I, and I, part of me thinks that Marvel might look back on that now and might think, yeah, maybe we should have just caved in on this to, to keep him. But, you know, the thing of it is, though, would that would, would they have gotten into more problems with Norton down the road? And it would have been a lot harder to recast Hulk down the road after so many movies yeah. than it was here just after one. 
But it was a matter of seeing Edward Norton taking up the uh, mantle of uh, Hulk in this, and then all of a sudden seeing the surprise in Avengers with seeing Mark Ruffalo taking up the role all of a sudden. And it's kind of one of those, like, what the hell happened sort of situations. Yeah. I, I was not all that impressed at the beginning of the film. I'm not going to lie about of the Avengers because I wasn't really sure how I'd like seeing uh, Ruffalo's adaptation of the Hulk in this film. Yeah, because it felt different. But in the end, it ended up working out and... You know, you could say that each had their key points that could they could make to see, you know, who could honestly have stuck into this role to this day and still played Hulk. Well, I think we can agree. Because we, because Ruffalo did a fantastic job in the end here, he I did. thought. Norton, Norton just feels like he was bred for this role, though. Yes, yeah, I was going to ask you that. You know, I, I feel like nothing to take away from Ruffalo, but I think that Edward Norton was the better Bruce Banner. Um, yeah. You know, and that's why it's really disappointing that we didn't get to see what he would bring to it later. Um, you know, that, that's one reason why when I go back and I watch this movie, it's a little difficult to watch on repeat viewings because of that, because it's not the same guy, and I think that kind of. Uh, detaches you from this movie a little bit, and I think that's why it kind of looks like is looks like the evil stepchild of all the Marvel movies. Yeah, because of that, because he's he's the only actor that's been replaced in, in the lead role out of all these characters. So it's 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 uh, hard. and it's upsetting. It is. It's it's a hard pill to swallow when you look at the whole scheme of the whole Marvel universe, looking at one character that this has gone through. But um, you know, all well, and to all, be fair, it just doesn't feel like. The MCU in general has really given Hulk a fair shake, though. Well, they haven't like, given him they, his own movie since this, and that's that's kind of a problem. Uh, it's like they're so more focused on everyone else when they realize when they need to realize that you know Hulk played a key factor into everything that the Avengers have done. Well, right, and 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 the, and there's a lot of big pieces. I mean, look at it in Thor Ragnarok, how big of a part he played. In that yeah, too. he was a big, crucial part. It almost felt like a quarter of his own movie with with Thor in a way. And you know, you got a chance to kind of see what what it might be like to have your own Thor movie with that. And I think it could mm -hmm. work, even though Marvel seems to be dead set against not doing it because they feel like it won't work. But I think they're wrong. I think they're wrong on that part. I really do. And I think that they could make it work if they really put the heart and the time into into doing it right. Yeah. Um, the one thing that also too is, is if you talk about this movie and I really realize or see this as another big flaw in the Marvel Universe is that okay we have seen General Ross quite a bit since this movie right we, we've seen William Hurt's General Ross he's appeared in Civil War he appeared in Adventures uh, Infinity War I believe on a, yeah. on a projection and we've seen him but we have not seen Liv Tyler's Betty Ross since this movie and to me that's kind of a problem because Betty really was Bruce's one true love and we have not even heard her so much as mentioned since Mark Ruffalo took the part and that is kind of bothersome considering this is supposed to still be continuity well to be fair a lot of it doesn't feel like it, it had a lot of continent, continuity it issues doesn't. let's face it it doesn't like a lot of the MCU felt like it had continuity issues especially gearing up towards the end of Phase 3 here. It felt like there was a lot of continuity issues. 
Well, not only that, too, there is another issue, too. At the end of the movie, uh, Tim Blake Nelson, Samuel Stearns, he was the scientist or the biologist that Bruce went to to try to find a cure that he was communicating on the computer with when he was in, uh, 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 was it Brazil or wherever it was? Yeah. And at the end of the movie, Stern gets exposed to some substance, I think it was near the end, to become his transformation into leader, but we have not seen him since then. Mm-hmm. Why? They were, they, were, they were advancing the story towards that, and they never came back to it. So again, that's another continuity problem that's not been brought into the big picture of things. I know, and it's kind of upsetting, but, you know, we're going to just have to face the facts that it, this, that they're just never going to treat the Hulk as what it should be, and that right. was one of the key focal points in Marvel. True. And, you know, the thing of it is, too, is that if they did another Hulk movie, they basically already have their villain. Just bring back Tim Blake Nelson and let it be leader. They have that. They can just revisit it and come back to it. Yeah. Um, but we'll see. Yeah, that, those are some issues that I just found with, with the continuity. And really, that, I think that's why it's hard to go back to the Incredible Hulk, because you start seeing some problems with the cinematic universe. There's not many of them, but there are some issues in the continuity that this movie kind of brings out and brings to the forefront a little bit. Like, the biggest issue with this was, you know, I can see why people look at this movie like, hey, this is probably the weakest one out of the uh, phase one, and that's because of the fact that it, it was all the issues that they had going in with this film. Yeah, it's all the bias about Edward Norton being recasted and all that other stuff. That's what it really is. If you look at the movie as itself as a whole and ignore that, but it was it's, very, amazing. it's still a very good movie. Yeah, it's still a very good Hulk movie. Uh, there's not really any issues with it that I see. I just think people are just ignoring it for the simple basis of Norton being gone now. And they're choosing to ignore it because now there's a new actor playing it. And it's wrong. It's wrong. People should give this movie a fair shot, go back and watch it for what it is. I agree. And ignore some of the continuity issues. That's what I'm going to do, even though I still see them. And I wish they maybe would go back and fix that, so therefore I don't have to complain about it anymore. Yeah. Um... But, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff here. Uh, the, the, the beginning is, is, is kind of cool because, you know, Bruce is in Brazil. He's communicating with a doctor over the computer to try to find a cure. He lists himself as Mr. Blue. Um, this mm-hmm. eventually leads to Banner cutting his finger, gets into a bottle, and he realizes that, you know, that's not good. So along the way, he has to find a way to get back to the States, and this leads to some growing friction with General Ross that he's had for a long time and reuniting with his long-lost love, Betty Ross. Which, I mean, there's not much you can do about it at this point. You've got to take the movie for what it is. You have to, like, you're either going to be on one side of the spectrum or the other. There is no in-between. You're either going to love this movie for what it is and what it represents. Mm-hmm. If you can look at the underlying tones of what this movie was, or you're going to look at all the issues this movie has and think it's crap. Right. Well, you should you should you shouldn't look at it as it being at being crap because it's not a crap movie. It's far from that. Um, it's a, still a very good Hulk story. Uh, the Abomination was a good villain. I think Tim Ross playing Abomination was really good. I liked seeing the human side of how evil he was going into being the Abomination. Um, so the villain was very strong in this movie. Exactly. You know, uh, his, his relationship with Betty, this, this, is, this is the sad part, because his relationship with Betty here, this is actually one of the best Marvel relationships we've seen probably since uh, 
really in the whole scheme since Captain America and and uh, everything. We went back and I told you about Peggy Ross and Captain America. Mm -hmm. In a way, I think that uh, Banner's and, and Betty's relationship is very reminiscent of that. You know, they want to be together, but they can't. Uh, yeah. And that's why it's kind of sad that we have not seen that progress since then. Because I think that's kind of something that could be beneficial. No, I agree. Alright, but let's go ahead and move on to the next one in our list here, and that was the first Thor film. As king of Asgard... But you're not king! Yes. Okay, well, I will start out by saying this. Thor is probably close to being my favorite out of the Marvel Universe. I really love the Thor movies. I, I, I like Chris Hemsworth's performance. Again, he's very much like Robert Downey. He embodies Thor, and he really, I think, is the perfect Thor. I agree. Um, I agree wholeheartedly. And, and this goes back to when this movie was being made, you know, there were concerns on how this movie was going to work. Because I go back to, again, with the whole Green Lantern thing. I mean, it's... Uh, the whole special effects issue, like you were saying. Yeah, I mean, because Asgard is almost all special effects. And was this going to work? Was it going to look fake? Was Marvel going to, you know... Was this going to be the movie that, that, that Marvel's whole plan was going to kind of blow up in their face right before Avengers? You know, if this movie doesn't work, you know, where do they go? Yeah, especially considering that Thor was such an integral part of the original Avengers team. Right. Right, because if this movie doesn't work, you know, you're kind of left with, well, do we proceed with Thor in the group, or do we just kind of slowly phase him out because it didn't work? I, I, yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's very interesting. And um, this movie, I don't know if you knew this, this movie was being developed as far back as 1991 with director Sam Raimi of the Spider-Man trilogy. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. But he soon abandoned the project, leaving it in development hell for many, many years until 2006 when Marvel signed a uh, producer to develop the project and then eventually get it moving. But Matthew Vaughn, who directed Kingsman and X-Men First Class, was originally assigned to direct the film for a 2010 release. Okay. Which this movie was not released, I believe, until 2011, a year later. Yeah, it was 2011. Um, all the main characters were cast, and all this and that. Uh, however, after Vaughn was, after after or however after Vaughn was released from his holding deal in 2008, uh, Shakespearean director Kenneth Branagh was approached and ended up getting the job. Which I thought was a brilliant move. Well, yeah, because if you look at Thor's dialogue, especially the Asgardian dialogue, it's mm -hmm. very Shakespearean. It really is. So he really was the perfect guy to take this on, I think. I would have liked maybe seen Kenneth Bragna go four to maybe direct Thor two and three, you know? But I kind of understand why he only did the first one, because the first one is primarily in Asgard. So yeah. it seems fitting that that was, you know, his movie, and then they proceeded elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, especially the direction they went in for Thor 3. I don't think Kenneth Bragna would have been the good choice to do Ragnarok at all. No, God, no, no, not, not at all. Not with the style of that. So, um, But yeah, this, this, this had quite the journey to the screen, but ultimately ended up really paying off. So let's go in first and foremost to the cast of this film. Great cast. This was... Next to the Iron Man film, 
I thought this was probably one of the most well-cast films in the entire series. I mean, the whole cinematic universe? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you got Chris Hemsworth, you got Natalie Portman, Tom Hiddleston, Stellan Skarsgård, uh, Ray Stevenson, Idris Elba. Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, Rene Russo. You got a full-blown cast here that is just and good. Each of them, each of them played their roles perfectly. Oh, God, yeah. Anthony Hopkins is perfect as Odin. My oh, yeah. God. He is Thor's father, literally. He just, he, great casting choice. I, not only that, could you imagine anyone else playing Loki? Oh, God, Hiddleston is, is Loki. I look at his face in other movies, I just wonder when the hell he's going to turn bad. Exactly. I, I can't see anything but Loki. He's just a conniving, evil-looking guy. No offense, Hiddleston. That's actually a compliment to you for being the, for being a great actor, but yes, wholeheartedly agree. I, like I said, this was probably one of the most well-thought-out casting decisions I've seen in the MCU so far. Oh God, yeah, yeah. And and thing of it is too is that you know how 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 important is Hiddleston? Because look at how important Loki has been to the cinematic universe. Exactly. He's been huge, monumental, and and that had to work. And not only did it work, but it's paid off in dividends big time. Which really makes me wonder: is it because of the role itself, or is it because of how Hiddleston portrayed Loki that? he's gotten such a prominent role in the MCU. Well, you know, it's nothing to take away from the writing, but I think that it's the, the way Hiddleston plays the part, he takes, he takes the dialogue and he just makes it something special. Yeah. Um, I know Hiddleston said that he looked at uh, Peter O'Toole, uh, Lawrence of Arabia fame. He took that as inspiration on how to play Loki. And, uh, you know... He's t he's taking inspiration from a very well-known actor from a very very uh, big-time role in a big, iconic movie, and uh, he lets it show that he really took it to heart and he's he ran with it. Yeah. All right, so let's go on to the actual movie itself here, then, Mike. Okay, uh, this is where things get a little interesting because we're gonna go back as far as 965 A.D. Uh, we're going to see Odin waging war against the Frost Giants, which they play a crucial part in this film. Yes, they um, do. Especially with Loki's uh, <clears throat> history of who he really is, and not really Odin's son. Um, so he does this to prevent them from conquering the Nine Realms, which starting with Earth. The Asgardian warriors do defeat the Frost Giants and seize the power, but the Frost Giants will later become an issue going forward in this film. Yeah, and now you see... Uh you see how Odin's, you know, talking about how both Thor and Loki are both worthy, but only ones can be king of Asgard. Now we go looking at Thor, who's now an adult, who's preparing for a ceremony where he'd be formally recognized as a crown prince. Yeah, um... You know, this really sets up very easily the whole Thor and Loki uh, butting heads of being brothers. Uh, you know, the funny thing is, too, is that, you know, th at this point, Thor was ready to become, you know, part of the leader of Asgard. And 
this never really formally happens until the end of Ragnarok, when he has no choice but to take control of the Asgardian people and take them to Earth to basically be their new home. Yeah. Um, but as we go through this, the Frost Giants infiltrate uh, Asgard, and doesn't go too uh, well. You know, they infiltrate the secure rooms that hold the casket. Uh, however, the Destroyer appears and stops the intruders from reattaining the casket, killing all three. Uh, you know, examining the remains, Odin's calm about it, yet Thor is extremely angry and wants to attack, while Odin is disagreeing. Yeah, um... After all this stuff, you know, Thor needs, you know, needs to go and attack back. So Thor ga gathers Loki and all of his friends, and they ride out to the Bifrost Bridge, where uh, Hemdall allows him to pass and go through. But this is being done against yeah, well, yeah, it allows him to uh, transport to the Frost Giants domain, Jotunheim. Well, it's note, too, that they are doing this against the wishes of Odin. Oh... <sighs> Let's see. We end up getting to where they confront uh, Lofe, who taunts the Asgardian warriors. More frost giants surround them, uh, and you know they allow uh, Thor and the group to leave peacefully. However, Thor, being what he is at this point in time, cocky smug cocky, smug, and reacts brashly to a frost giant's insult and battle starts. Uh, Loki gets touched by a frost giant and starts experiencing an unusual reaction. Not your typical usual reaction that, you know, that he should have suffered. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this leads to different things, and this, this also ultimately ends up leading to Thor being driven to Earth and being cast out by Odin due to his actions. And here he meets the lovable Jane Foster, played by Natalie Portman. Which I thought was a very well-done role. Natalie Portman pulled off uh, this role really well in bringing Thor to who he is. Well, that's kind of, that's why it's kind of sad, too, that uh, unfortunately she, we have, Jane Foster has not proceeded beyond uh, Thor 2. Um, I don't really ever, I don't really know that if they do make another Thor movie, will they ever revisit Jane Foster? I don't Which know. I don't think so. I'm having a feeling, too, that they will not. Um, and I don't know if they ever will get, we ever will get another Thor movie. Yeah, we don't All know. Because I think that this sequence of films, minus what we've gotten in the last uh, few years, is going to continue beyond Endgame. It, it probably will. Um, I, I know that there's been talk about another Thor movie because the Ragnarok was so well-liked in the direction that it was going in that they wanted to make another one similar to it. Um, I know Chris Hemsworth is has been open to the idea, so he's not willing to walk away like uh, Chris Evans is doing now. Um, well, it's also because Chris Evans has been doing this since 2011, well, they've been doing about the same amount of and, time. But he's also wants to get new roles in. He doesn't want to keep playing the superhero role like well, he's done for the last however long. Then, now, to, to be fair, though, 
Chris Hemsworth, it seems like, has made that choice to not do other roles, but Chris Hemsworth's been in a lot of stuff while he's been doing Thor. Exactly. So, I mean, it's not. I don't think it's because of Chris Evans not having the time to do other roles. I just don't think he's wanting to, or what it is. I don't really, not really sure what he's been doing because Chris Hemsworth has been in a shit ton of stuff since he's been doing Thor. He appears, it seems like, in almost everything, somehow, some way, in a small role or a big role or whatever. Yeah. Um, but uh, to proceed through this a little bit, um, I, I, I like, uh, a lot of people have problems with this movie just because they don't like Thor on Earth. Some people have said that they think Thor works better when he's off of Earth. But people need to realize that this had to happen. Thor had to see how the Earth people lived in order to become an Avenger. So exactly. I, don't, I don't know how people wanted this to go without him going to Earth. It just doesn't make sense. Explain to me how else the Avengers works otherwise. It mm-hmm. just would. It just wouldn't. I agree. Um, now going through this, you know, going to end of the film here. Uh, Loki is going to Heimdall's observatory and sets up the bridge to destroy uh, to destroy the ice planet Jotunheim. Uh, Thor tries to stop him to engage in combat. Thor has uh, Jolnir at this point mm-hmm. and starts to destroy the Rainbow Bridge to stop the portal. Uh, when the bridge shatters, they both fall into space, but Odin arrives and catches Thor, which you see Thor holding on to Loki's staff. Loki admits defeat and allows himself to fall, disappearing into the void. Now it's which Luke. we sit here and think that this enti- after this, you know, Loki's gone. Loki's gone. You know, this is the first time Loki dies out of how many times in this whole thing? We think uh, he's it, dead. It had to have been five, six times. It feels like. Well, let's think. At the end of Thor one, we think he's dead. At the end of Thor two, or we think he dies. But then at the end, it's revealed that he's masking as Odin. So that's two times. Avengers. Um, Avengers Infinity. Avengers one. It look. It appears like he's gone. Uh, uh, was it three? Well, Infinity War. He appears to be dead. I think that one's probably going to stick. I don't know. I don't know. We'll I don't see. know. I think we're going to see him come back. Somehow. Loki coming back somehow. I wouldn't doubt it, considering how many times he's cheated death already. Um, but uh, unfortunately, at the end of this film, with the bridge being destroyed, Thor cannot go back to Earth, and he's not only mourning his brother, but he's also missing Jane Foster. Um, but uh, Himdall assures him that you know Foster is looking for him, and that maybe eventually he'll be able to get back somewhat. But... Um, Jane Foster's now being assisted by S.H.I.E.L.D., so that's how this movie comes to an end, with Thor being stuck in Asgard temporarily. And then uh, afterwards, Selvig has been taken to the Joint Dark Energy Mission Facility, where he meets... post-credit sequence, yes. Yeah, Mm -hmm. where he meets Nick Fury. Uh, Fury shows him the Tesseract in a briefcase, which he says could be a source of unlimited power. Loki Loki appears in a reflection, Mm -hmm. invisible to Selvig and Fury and says, well, I guess that's worth a look, which Selvig repeats due to Loki's subtle influence. 
creepy. So now we know that Loki really isn't dead. We're not really sure how he's there, but he's there, and Selvig is under a little bit of an influence, which directly leads into, of course, the Avengers from there. So, yeah, all this in all, leads man, into the first Avengers film. I have an army. We have a Hulk. Oh, I thought the Beast had won it all. You're missing the point. There's no throne. There is no version of this where you come out on top. Maybe your army comes, and maybe it's too much for us, but it's all on you. Because if we can't protect the Earth, you can be damn well sure we'll avenge it. Yeah, uh, you know, this... I remember when this was coming out, you know, this was the first time ever where... And it was a matter of... This was the one that I was anticipating the absolute most out of all of them. Well, I figure that most people were, but this is the one that I was personally anticipating the most out of all the films because it's looking into, can they pull off what the Avengers have done? Can they make a Avengers film with all this star-studded cast that they have? Can they pull off a top-class film? Can they pull off dealing with this potentially turning into something bigger than just, you know, one or two films, maybe. Well, yeah. I mean, this is the first time ever we have seen all kinds of superheroes on one screen together in one big movie. And, you know, there was a slight chance that this movie wouldn't work. There was a chance that the movie would feel cluttered, bloated, and that there wouldn't be any enough focus on everybody. You know, and I think I think if people had that genuine concern going into this, that exactly. it might not work. I mean, I'm glad to say now that not only did it work, but it ended up being a very, very, very full movie that just worked on every on almost every level. Mm -hmm. um, it definitely was a great thing to see what this franchise has become after five movies, and you know, not only did we, not only did we not realize that this was the beginning of something even bigger, you know. To come later on, I mean, think of this movie already. The Avengers is from 2012. It's insane to think about because it's looking at this. Uh, it got released in America May 4th, 2012, yeah. in the U.S. Which is almost watch. seven years to the day we are getting the final Avengers film. Really, it really is amazing that uh, that there's really been this long, and uh, w w what even this movie did to launch itself into Phase Two, um, because really in this movie we only scratched the surface of, of of the whole Thanos picture. I mean, this is all about just one Infinity Stone. Uh, exactly. This was a matter of this was what are they gonna do to you know, show off the Avengers in here, and they picked a perfectly good uh, uh, point in this series to show off the Avengers' first true big villain, and that was Loki again. Yeah, you know, I was surprised by that. I didn't, I didn't expect Loki to be a, a villain here again. I can't say that I was surprised. I kind of expected this to happen, but it was the end. The end after credit scene that I actually stood up and cheered in the theaters seeing when I went to the midnight release for this movie 
and that's because we got we got to finally see the first beginning of Thanos. Oh, in the, in the post credit sequence. Was, yeah, yeah, that was a pretty. You big saw moment. Thanos for the first time in the MCU, and my jaw just dropped, and I stood up and started cheering and clapping because they were going in the direction of the Infinity Stones with this exact film. Yeah, because before this moment, you really there really wasn't a whole lot of conclusive thing that that's the direction they were going in because at this time we only had the Tesseract being referenced and we didn't know if that was just being used as something in itself or were they going to advance themselves into an Infinity War storyline. But this all but it was because it. this confirmed that this was the direction they were going. So now it's a matter of going back through all the films and seeing what could you have missed that could led into this story because everything had some sort of influence on everything that was to happen with Endgame and with uh, Infinity War. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 the whole scheme of things and the big picture of things is just... It really, it really starts at this movie, really. Phase 1 is just really just the, the appetizer to the main course to come. Um... I'm also pleased to say, too, that this movie also did some shooting right in our backyard here in Cleveland. Yeah, that's true. That was really cool. Um, actually, one of the sequences that you see where they're walking out of the um, uh, the one building after a party, I believe it is, and you can tell it's a little bit of Tower City that they're standing in front of, mm -hmm. which, is, which is really cool. Um, some of the big scenes at the end in the streets and everything are also shot here, too, so we get to kind of reference that and enjoy that here. That uh, not only did we get one Marvel movie uh, shot here, but we also get the Winter Soldier. That was a lot of it was shot here, which is really cool. Yeah, I had forgotten about that. That uh, Winter Soldier was filmed here in Cleveland. Yep, yep, very, very, very cool. Uh, but yeah, I mean, th th this movie did did a lot going forward. Um, we also get reintroduced into uh, Bruce Banner's life, but now with Mark Ruffalo playing the part, um, like you said before. Uh, kind of mixed on how that went at first. Really weren't feeling him as Bruce Banner in the beginning. Didn't really know what to think. Um, yeah. How it was going to work. But uh, I, don't, I don't even really think that after this movie I completely bought into Mark Ruffalo yet. I hadn't completely bought into him either. But I thought by the end of this that, you know, they did a good job of, you know, explaining how Mark Ruffalo playing... Hulk, and he did a great job at it. I thought he did. I wasn't well, like I agree. I wasn't completely sold on it yet, but as the movie went on, I thought he did a great job. Oh yeah, I mean he plays the part really, really well. I mean, he, and and going going forward beyond this movie, he does it even better as he gets more involved in playing the role longer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was just after this movie initially, I wasn't. I wasn't sold on him yet. I don't think it really it was until maybe Age of Ultron when they showed him next that really I was like, okay, you know, he feels like he's Bruce Banner now. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that, that was the big moment. We're also introduced to a couple other new Avengers here as well. Uh, we get the introduction of James Renner's uh, Hawkeye for the first time. Yeah, Jeremy Renner playing Hawkeye. With, I was excited to see Hawkeye being in this film. Cause I was a fan of Hawkeye. Uh, in general, and the fact that it took them this long to introduce him into a film, even the, even even in some sort of small role, was surprising to me. Yeah, because he spends a good portion of this movie actually playing a bad guy, but that's because he's influenced by Loki's spell. 
Yeah. Um, so we, we, you know, the thing is too. That's another, that's another character like Black Widow that I kind of would like to see his own movie. I don't know if it's going to happen because maybe because the character is not quite as well rounded for his own movie. I don't know. What do you, what do you think on that? I don't know. Yeah, it's it's hard. I can kind of see where the conflict might be for them to want to make that. Um, but I, you know, if they can make Black Widow, I mean, I guess Hawkeye could be. Could be a possibility. I mean, it's possible. It's a matter of does Jeremy Renner want to do it, though. Yeah, that's a good thing, too. That's a good question, because he's got a pretty busy career as well, so I don't know if he'd even want to. He might be done as well after Endgame here. Um, what other uh, adventures did they say, introduce uh, this movie? What's that? What other uh, new adventure did they add into this? Uh, Hawkeye. I think that might have been it. Oh, we well, we get Kobe Smulders playing Maria Hill. She's new to the group as yeah. well as, as an assistant to Nick Fury. I'm just sitting here looking right now. Um, really, you didn't really get anyone else. No, it really was really only one new Avenger added to the group because the only other one we had only seen very little of was uh, was of Black Widow because she was only a small side part in Iron Man 2. So um, we got a chance to see more of her here, especially when she's looking for Bruce uh, in the beginning of the film. Yeah. All right, so... We sit here, we can just talk about, we can go over this entire film, we can just go over some key points that we noticed throughout the film. Like, mm-hmm. one of the biggest points I saw was, you know, uh, Coulson attempting to save Thor from the uh, cell that he was in, uh, but Loki stabs him through the chest with the scepter, mm-hmm. and then, you know, takes Thor from the helicarrier. Thor breaks free at the last second, landing in a field. Rogers and Stark are eventually able to overcome their aggressors and get the helicarrier airborne again. But Loki escapes and Coulson dies from his injury. Yeah, that was kind of shocking to me. I did not see the Coulson death coming. Neither did I. I thought that, you know, with how they had him in most of the other films, if not all of them at this point... Right. That he was going to play at least some sort of role in all the films. Well, you, you I know that um, in, in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the series, they actually brought Coulson back saying that he faked his death to inspire the Avengers. Okay. But I don't know how he survived, because recently I watched that scene again from the Avengers when he died, and I don't really know how he faked his death. It looked pretty legit. Uh, that could have been some sort of weird continent well then again Marvel has a history of making great movies but shitty TV shows um yeah I mean let's be honest yes I mean their their TV DC beats them in the TV department yeah DC's making much better shows I never really got into Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I watched the pilot I didn't find myself really enjoying it so I just really didn't watch it but then you got uh, shows like uh, then you got like the Netflix shows like Luke Cage, Iron Fist. Yeah, I, I mean, thought they were as well. Yeah, there, there's nothing really special. And then you look more the uh, Netflix recently they canceled The Punisher, they canceled Daredevil, and I know there's a possibility that Daredevil may be revived. They've been talking about. Well, I can, I'll definitely be happy if they revive uh, Daredevil. 
I can't believe that they're canceling the Punisher. Yeah, Punisher's gone over very well with fans, so I'm very surprised. Now, from what I understand, the reason why Netflix has been canceling these shows is because Disney is launching their own streaming service, and I guess they wanted to move a lot of their shows over to this new service because they're going to use it for Marvel and, and Star Wars and stuff like that. But and here's think- the problem. that They're going to be alienating so many people by doing this because not everyone wants to pay some exorbitant fee monthly fee in order to actually just watch those particular shows. Well, what Disney's betting on is that Netflix, before this service, had all the Marvel films, all the Star Wars films, and all the Marvel TV shows. Now with the new service, Netflix is losing the rights to all that, and they're being moved over there, so they feel like the people may drop Netflix and go over there in order to get that. That's kind of their angle, I think, their whole business angle. I've personally been one of the ones that have been fighting against this like i've been petitioning for this not to happen well i know i know it's happening because i know they officially i guess this weekend it was at a star wars star wars celebration convention that they actually have two star wars live action shows they're going to be premiering on that streaming service as well and it's unfortunate that it's just going to be on there like why can't it be on two different platforms Right. I mean, Disney still would get the bigger cut of anything that the show would make from that. Well, it's like... It's Even like, with the service plan and everything, like, for people that are... To, because you know that there's going to be some sort of method of them being able to tell, like, who's tuning in specifically for this particular show. Mm-hmm. Why not, you know, why not have... Disney make, come to an agreement with Netflix or any other streaming service like that I mean, like, here, yes, you can do this, but in return, we want X percentage of the income from uh, what you're getting for people watching these shows. Right. It's, I would think that would be a fair trade-off because you got so many more people that are tuning into Netflix because of this. So Netflix is going to be making a lot more money. Disney's going to be a lot happier and everything, too, right. because... Right. A, even if they just do stuff like the event or any of the Marvel's MCU stuff, why can't they do that? Because that would get so much more exposure for them being able to, like, here you go. If you want to watch any more of this, yeah. come on, join our service, pl- our uh, streaming service that we're starting here so we can, you know, give you this product. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, it, it, it kind of sucks that, like, for, you know... But instead, they're running a monopoly on yeah, it all. For, 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 being, for me being a Star Wars fan, now it's telling me in order for me to see the next parts of, of parts of the story, the TV series, I now have to buy into a new service to see that. It's not exactly fair. No, I mean, it's not. That's the problem with, like, a lot of shows becoming paid subscription shows instead of just being on TV for cable, is that they're forcing you to pay these fees to watch these shows, and it's not exactly fair to do. Exactly. Um, but I was looking into uh, Coulson and how he came back to life. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Coulson is revealed to be the S.H.I.E.L.D. agent in charge of Project Tahiti, which was meant to bring a potential dead Avenger back to life using a drug derived from an ancient Kree corpse. However, test patients developed psychosis and hypergraphia, so Coulson had the project shut down. Following his death, Fury resurrected him using Tahiti despite the risks and had Coulson's memories of the project replaced so that he could move on with a healthy life. Coulson puts together a team of agents, and they travel the world dealing with strange new cases. Fury makes Coulson the new director of S.H.I.E.L.D. and tasks him with rebuilding the agency after Hydra revealed itself to be infiltrating it. Mm-hmm. 
So that's how it all went down. So he really didn't fake his death. What it ended up being is he was brought back to life from a, from a Creed Corpse project that they were working on. Which that's interesting to think about now going into that because that leads you to think, could this be how, could that have, set, have something to do with what we're going to see in Endgame? Could mm -hmm. we see Project Tahiti being brought back in? So, it's a good thing to think about. Well, then again, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, and as I read down here, listen to this, what happened to him in the TV series. We didn't watch this. This is interesting, actually. So, he and the agents are later abducted and sent to the future. After their return, Coulson allows himself to briefly become a ghost rider to defeat the artificial intelligence Ada. But after their return, it is revealed that being Ghost Rider burned through the Kree DNA that healed Coulson's fatal injury, leaving him to die slowly. After the team's many failed attempts to save him, Coulson ultimately chooses to leave S.H.I.E.L.D. and live the remainder of his life in Tahiti with Melinda May, with whom he developed a romantic relationship with. Okay. So that's why we have not seen him in anything else going forward. Alright. So that makes sense. So now we know that end. We didn't know that. So, but um, we moved completely away from uh, the Avengers here. Yeah, let's just go over the brief subject. So the movie ultimately ends up leading us down the path of um, it being all about the Tesseract. Loki tries to bring these creatures up, through yeah, a black ends hole. Ends up bringing essentially a giant battle in New York, mm -hmm. uh, which ends up ultimately leading to what we think is uh, Tony Stark's. Uh, swan song in this because it looks like he it. looks like he is gonna sacrifice himself in order to uh, make in order to save everyone. And this very easily could have they really, to be honest, they really very easily could have killed off Tony Stark here if they really wanted to. They could have. Yeah, but uh, Banner catches Stark as he falls while the Tatari fleet is decimated by the nuclear explosion effectively disabling the forces on Earth. Uh, Black Widow closes the portal. The battle's finally won. Yeah, and they finally come together as a team, and they finally become the very thing that Coulson was trying to prove with his death, and they become one. Um, uh, Thor escorts Loki back to Asgard with the Tesseract to guard it. Afterwards, the Avengers diverge, through, though Fury knows that at such a time that a new world-threatening menace emerges, the team will reassemble. That's Meanwhile, in yeah. the after credit scene, the Other meets with Thanos and informs him of Loki's failure. He shares the concerns over the strength of Earth's heroes, commenting that attempting to challenge them again would be to court death, at what Thanos smiled statistically great because this led into what we had originally thought was going to be <coughs> what they had originally planned for this whole time mm -hmm. and that was uh thanos acquiring the infinity gauntlet to wipe out ex how they did in the film or how an uh infinity wars happened where he acquired all the stones snapped his fingers and half the universe was wiped out in an instant. Right. But it was all, because in the comics, it was all to impress Lady Death. Whereas, you know, mm -hmm. 
actually gave him a sense of purpose and all that in doing that, where it made you actually feel for Thanos in the MCU for the reasoning behind it. But going back to the this first showing of Thanos mm-hmm. to what we have now is a completely different thing because they looked like at first they were going on a complete path down what the comics were. Which they have done, from what I've heard, a very good job at following them, for the most part, down a pretty steady path. It was just a matter of how Thanos' end goal was to do it to save the universe, really, from overpopulation, compared to, you know, doing it all just to impress Lady Death. That's a good point. Hey, you know, that's why I think it made the storyline so exciting to go forward, because it really provided us what was going to come forth in the next... Two phases, essentially. So, yeah, the Avengers moves us along here. So now, as we reach the end of Phase 1, um, we're going to ask the big question for you and me both. Which Phase 1 movie was your favorite? Iron Man, Incredible Hulk, Iron Man 2, Thor, Captain America the First Avenger, or The Avengers? Like I said, I personally thought the Incredible Hulk was one of my favorites, mm-hmm. despite all the negative publicity that it had gotten. Mm-hmm. But taking into account all of those films, I would have to say The Avengers. So The Avengers is your favorite? Yeah. Okay. Um, for me, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge Thor fan, um, but... I pretty much am going to go with my favorite Phase 1 being Captain America, the first adventure, and a lot of that has to do with just the, the how, how well cast that movie was, the fact that it takes place in the 40s, and really we're given the chance to see Captain America's origin story leading into where we are in the Avengers. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Okay. Now. So this leads us into Phase 2. Oh, boy. Okay. Which begins with Iron Man 3. Some people call me a terrorist. I consider myself a teacher. Lesson number one. Heroes. There is no such thing. Now this is where things get a little dicey. And I know that I am in the majority here with a lot of people because there is a lot of people that really ended up being disappointed with this film. I was one of them. I was heavily disappointed with this film. For one of the biggest reasons was because Favreau was no longer directing. Yeah, and not only that, we also get a different screenwriter as well. So this also just kind of changed the whole big picture of what we saw before it. Um, this, I have to say this was not the greatest way to start Phase 2 after Avengers. This was kind of a lackluster start. And I think it started to create a little bit of worry in some people. I remember reading some of the forum uh, comments about this after it came out, and people started getting concerned about, you know... What are we going to expect from the rest of the MCU now? After a big Avengers movie, are we going to start getting fatigue already? And there was a genuine concern for this. I mean, they had a decent cast uh, here because, you know, you had... Almost everyone else from the prior uh, Iron Man movies reprising their roles. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously you had Robert Downey Jr., Gwyneth Paltrow, Cheadle, 
John Favreau, all of them reprising their roles. You have Ben Kingsley coming in to this, playing Mandarin. Well, kind of. Kind of playing Mandarin. That turned into one big joke in the last act. Yeah. Which he didn't end up actually even being the genuine Mandarin that we know from the comics. You have... You just... You have so many good points of what they could have done with this film. But it was... I don't... I don't even know how to begin, like, where this film went wrong, really. Um, well, one of my biggest problems with this movie is that the movie... The ending of this film really is, is, is kind of a big continuity clusterfuck because at the end of the movie, you know, Stark promises to scale back his entire life as Iron Man. He underwent a surgery to remove the shrapnel near his heart, and he says that he'll always be Iron Man, but basically he was going to retire. But then we jump right into Age of Ultron, and he's back to being Iron Man with not really so much as a huge mention to all this. It's like they were treating Iron Man 3 as a bookend of a trilogy and kind of almost ignoring where the whole big picture of the whole Avengers universe was. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a big problem with a lot of people because that created a big continuity kind of air. Yeah. Um, I think also, too, with Mandarin not really being Mandarin and it being one big smokescreen and the real uh, the real villain being Guy Pierce's Altridge Killian, which goes back as far as that flashback at the beginning... So, I think people were pissed off at who the villain ended up becoming, and that Mandarin was one big cop-out, fake-out. Yeah. Alright, but, and going into this, we've got, like you said, the flashback to where uh, Stark meets uh, Killian, who promotes his company, Advanced Idea Mechanics. Mm-hmm. However, Stark deciding to research another operation uh, extremist with Maya Hansen misleads Killian into believing he was interested in his ideas, sends him to wait on the roof, never intending to show up. Stark witnesses the powers of extremists firsthand as it can genetically manipulate living organisms. Uh, as the New, York, New Year's fireworks go off, Killian is left alone on the roof. Yeah. Well, it's funny, too, because um, I'm, I'm, I'm reading something interesting here as you were talking. Uh, director Shane Black, he went on to say that ultimately we do give you the Mandarin, the real guy, but it's actually Guy Pierce's Altridge Killian in the end who ends up being Mandarin because he has a big dragon tattooed on his chest. See, to me, that, 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 that doesn't cut it. No, not that, at all. That doesn't cut it. And then on top of it all, Rebecca Hall, who plays Maya Hansen, she was very unhappy by a lot of things. So she thought her character was going to be a strong female character, and that's what ultimately ended up having her take the role. But by the time the movie was released, she confirmed that her character's role was greatly reduced in the final film, saying, I signed on to do something that was a substantial role. She wasn't entirely the villain, they have been several phases of this, but I signed on to do something very different to what ended up to what I ended up doing. So she ended up being very unhappy with the final cut, and she ended up kind of feeling cheated based upon why she took the role. Well, it's understandably why. Because actually, if you look, her character seems like it's going to be important in the beginning, in the opening act when they do the flashback. Mm -hmm. And then her character throughout just kind of seems like it's being used as kind of like a 
just a side character. Yeah. And I can understand that if you were promised something else when you took this role and you were cheated out of it, I, I can understand exactly where she's coming from. <sighs> it's hard to talk about this movie because there, there, there is this is probably one of the Marvel movies with a lot of there is a lot of ish, issues with this film. There really is. In my opinion, like this was the worst out of the entire MCU. Um, trying to think of all the films. Uh, seeing if I agree with you on that as I'm looking through it. Yeah, because you know what? To be honest with you. I look at all the MCU movies and I, and I look to see what other films I've either revisited and watched numerous times or ones that I wish I would have gone back and watched and haven't. Yeah. And really, this is the one film where I never really had a desire to go back and watch it. Alright, same here. I think I've only seen the movie once. I have the Blu-ray sitting on my shelf I've and seen I have it not twice, watched it. but like the second time I just made me hate it even more. See, that's what I'm concerned about, because I have not watched it a second time, and I've thought about it, and I'm wondering if I'm going to hate it, you know, or I'm going to dislike it even more than what I did the first time. Uh, yeah, so, and going to the after-credits scenes here and everything, uh, in the aftermath of the events of the container terminal, Stark makes a promise to Potts that he'll find a cure for her extremist condition, and orders Jarvis to remotely destroy each of the Iron Man suits. Uh, both Vice President Rodriguez and Trevor are taken into police custody as Stark decides to undergo surgery to remove the piece of shrapnel embedded in his heart. Uh, Stark has decided that even without his suit or arc reactor in his chest, he will always be Iron Man. Stark finishes telling the story to Banner, who has fallen asleep after the introduction of Byrne. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know. This movie just, uh, I, first of all, I don't even know why Shane Black was hired to do this film. Um, I didn't. I don't really think he had a lot of big prior credits. I don't really know what they really saw in him. Um, and the thing of it is, I don't understand why Favreau wasn't brought back either, because he's still in this movie, is happy, so why wasn't he directing this film? Was Marvel wanting to go in a different direction with somebody else to create a different tone and feel, or was that he didn't want to return? You know, that's that's the big question. Yeah, I have no idea, honestly. Um, okay, so that's going to lead us into Thor The Dark World. I intend to pursue Malekith. We possess the ether. Malekith will come to us. Yes, and he will destroy us. You overestimate the power of these creatures. No, I value our people's lives. I'll take Jane to the Dark World and draw the enemy away from Asgard. When Malekith pulls the ether from Jane, it will be exposed and vulnerable. And I will destroy it and him. And we're going into one of the best in Phase 2, I thought. Uh, I, for me personally, I wouldn't say the, the best of Phase 2, but um, well, it's, it's, one still, of the best, it's still a good piece of Phase 2. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I mean, after the success of Thor 1, I mean, unfortunately, they didn't bring back Kenneth Rogner to direct. It's this, this time it's directed by Alan Taylor, who's known for directing many episodes of Game of Thrones, which is fine, considering this is about dark elves. It seems appropriate that a Game of Thrones veteran director would be doing this film. Yeah, you've got a uh, couple of great names in here. You've got the people that you would have expected from the first film reprising their roles, like... Uh, Hemsworth, Hiddleston, Portman, and Hopkins uh, reprising each of their roles. 
you've got the addition of Christopher Eccleston Doctor at Malekith, mm-hmm. which I my jaw dropped the second you heard his voice. Yeah, I, I, I like I like his villain. I, he gets heavily criticized by a lot of Marvel fans that. You know, oh, this is the weakest of the MCU. It's not that good. He wasn't a good villain. I don't really see what the problem with it is. I'm yeah. not really seeing the issue. I mean, I don't know how people could say this film is weaker than Iron Man 3. It's not even in the same league as Iron Man 3. No, not at all. So I don't know what people's complaints are there. I don't understand it, but whatever. Um, you know, this movie, again, brings in another Infinity Stone. Yeah, this one was the Power Stone, correct? I believe so. The other Redstone, Power Stone, yeah. Um, they said this time, you know, Thor has to team up with Loki uh, to save the Nine Realms from the Dark Elves led by the vengeful Malekith, who intends to plunge the universe into complete and total darkness. Uh, yeah, he nearly succeeds in using the Aether to cause the instantaneous destruction of the Nine Realms under the misguided belief that he can recreate them in his own image. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's opposed by Bor, the then king of Asgard, and the father of Odin, who uses the Bifrost to rip the Aether from Malekith's grasp, just as he attempted to enact his plan, robbing the Dark Elves of their most potent weapon. See, this is this is I, as I'm listening to you, you say the plot. You know, this 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 provides an interesting plot, and this is actually a very pretty crucial piece of the whole Infinity War storyline yeah. going forward. Um, you know, so I'm not really seeing the issue here. Um, you know, I know uh, from what I'm reading here, a lot of critics, you know, d- destroyed the destroyed the movie by saying it criticized its story, its villain, its pacing. Um, I also read here too that it turns out that Kenneth Bragna did withdraw from the project himself. Yeah. And here is something interesting: Patty Jenkins was considered to direct the film. She ultimately ended up directing Wonder Woman, which we know how big that became. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason why Natalie Portman go- going forward beyond this film was not wanting to return was because she was very much on board with Patty Jenkins being the director of the film, and she felt like that Marvel tossed her aside because they wanted Alan Taylor, and she was upset, and she almost considered withdrawing herself from this project as well. <sighs> it... I don't know how I feel about that, honestly. You know, it's... I mean, it was unfortunate to hear that that was the reasoning behind it, but, hey, we each got our own plans, I guess, and agendas. I, I, I guess so. Um, you know, it, it's it's sad. But, you know, overall, through and through, this movie is is, is a good part of, of everything. Um, I, I don't really know what people's problem with it is. Um... You know, the villain's strong, the story's strong. It's darker than Thor 1. I mean, there's a lot less humor oh, yeah. than the first Thor. And, I, and um, you know, it kind of had to, considering the way the story was being told here. Uh, which, you know, people are... People. I, I, don't, I don't know. I can't ex- explain what people, people do. So... Uh, and then... We get to... Later on in the film, we get to where, uh, uh, meanwhile, alerted by Foster's use of the Aether, uh, Malekith and his uh, group awake from their long sleep. Uh, consumed with vengeance and eager to procure the Aether to once again transform the universe into darkness, 
the Dark Elves plotted their next offense against Asgard. Under Malekith's orders, Algrim allows himself to be captured by the Asgardians while in disguise as a marauder and using vile technology turns himself into Curse, a superpowered warrior that the Dark Elves used frequently in their war against the Asgardians. So this whole series, this whole uh, sequence of events, like you were saying, this movie had a lot darker tone, like a lot less humor in there, mm -hmm. just based off everything that they were uh, accomplishing in this film, like the story they were trying to tell. Yeah, I mean, yeah, people, I think people may have, may have been upset that the movie lost some of its humor, and I think that's why a lot of people liked Ragnarok a lot, because it went back to that humor and made the movie more fun, and I understand it, because I love Thor Ragnarok, but... You know, so, okay, we told a, a dark Thor story, so what? So we can't tell a dark Thor story? It's like, it, why, why is that not okay to do? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Um, so, as the movie goes along, uh, Malekith gets awakened by the Aether's release, which released him kind of to harness the stone. Uh, Thor battles him and eventually takes him out. Uh... I'm trying to really remember what happened to the stone after that because the stone have kind of kind of absorbed itself into um, Malekith. I'm trying to remember how it got out of him. Uh, let's see. Looking at here, using the devices, Thor impales Malekith with them, allowing Foster to teleport that uh, him back to Svartalfheim, stopping the attack. However, Malekith's uh, damaged arc starts to crash and nearly crushes Thor and Foster when Selvig uses the last of his devices to teleport away. It ended up on uh, Svartalheim and lands on Malekith, uh, killing the Dark Elf leader. The portals then close and the ordeal is finally over. Uh, so, it's looking like at some point there, they were able to... Uh, get the stone out like one that had happened because you know at this point you get the reveal that um, you know Odin is revealed to be Loki having faked his death and usurped Odin's throne okay yeah that alright now that makes sense I, I, I was trying to figure out exactly yeah that actually makes a whole lot of sense because yeah, I'm reading the thing now okay yeah um yeah, we're left here again with Loki, you know, faking his death again. <sighs> the trickster. Yeah, so we've got uh, Sif. I want to say this is the after credit scene here. Uh, yes. Sif and Volstag hand over the captured Aether to Tanelir Tivan. Uh, Tivan appears eager to take it, but is curious as to why the Asgardians don't just keep it secured in their own vault. Volstagg explains that the Tesseract is already on Asgard and that to keep two Infinity Stones in the same place would be unwise. Mm -hmm. As they leave, the Collector remarks, one down, five to go. Yeah. yeah again, I mean, here we are. The, the, the way this post-credit scene plays out, it's almost like it feels like... Oh, no, no, no. I was wrong. About what? Uh, this was the reality stone. 
Because the whole point of this was the Dark Elves uh, trying to use the Aether to bend the universe and to reshape it into their will. That's right. That's right. And that's the stone that the Collectors had in uh, Infinity Wars when they ended up traveling back to nowhere. Oh, yeah. You're right. So, yeah, it had to have been the Reality Stone. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Okay, yeah. All right, so that that's how that played out. Um, so, yeah, I mean, here again, we almost have, like, an Avengers-esque end credit sequence that leads in another big picture of things and, you know, it leads us to another good Thor movie in, in a sense, you know? I'm, I'm pretty uh, pretty happy with that. But yeah, so it's really interesting to see how they ended up doing a lot of how the Avengers films have ended mm -hmm. with their big reveals and everything, how they gave it that sort of feel in this film. Like, at the end, after credit scenes. Yeah, I mean, they were very much uh, setting the tone. Setting the tone for what was to come. And the thing that it is, too, is that, like, when you look beyond uh, Thor 2, I mean, your next your next few movies are, are Cap 2, Guardians, uh, leading into Age of Ultron. And, and the thing that it is, too, is if you look at Age of Ultron, Age of Ultron actually really didn't have a whole lot of... Um, uh, it didn't really follow a big scheme of Infinity War storylines other than, of course, you know, with the stone for Vision. But, uh, really, this is our last big... Well, exactly, because, I mean, if you... Uh, how big were you into the comics at this point when, uh, when Age of Ultron came out? Uh, I was still pretty... Still pretty light on it yet at this point. A lot of people were very upset by the choice of main villain for Age of Ultron, and to be fair, I kind of was too. Really? Because Ultron happened... It was a more recent villain that was released in the uh, Avengers universe in Marvel. That's interesting. Like, it was more along the lines of uh, only a couple to like a few years removed from being introduced in the <coughs> MCU... Or not in the MCU, but in uh, Marvel Comics series... Uh, as an actual wow. villain. That's interesting why they would choose that approach. Yeah, a lot of people were questioning the decision on Marvel there, but I mean, it ended up turning out really well, just yeah. like you had seen in the movies. Like they, because they did a great job. Uh, the actor who played uh, the voice of uh, Ultron did James, an amazing job. James Spader, yeah. Um, but yeah, but it's we, just a matter of, like. The movie felt like a pause in the Infinity War storyline a little bit. Or it felt more like a reason to bring in another stone, but it really, to be fair, had nothing to do with the actual storyline no. of um, Infinity War. No, the only thing it really did was introduce us to Vision. It's really all it really accomplished going forward. But uh, we'll get to that one it more in depth when we actually get to the next Avengers film. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of which, we are looking more at the time and we are realizing we are running a little short today on time. Well, we also, too, we don't want to make this podcast too long. We're going to do it in doses. So, um, this is going to be the end of part one. Um, we'll be doing part two when we do the last 11 going into Endgame. Um, 
So, uh, yeah, so up to this point, we are past Thor 2, so our, our next one, going into the next one, will be Captain America the Winter Soldier, will be our next one we start off with in Part 2. Yeah. So make sure to listen Which, to that Part point, 2. Uh, it was Captain America the Winter Soldier, and then it was followed by the, ne- the uh, two Guardians of the Galaxy films. Yeah, the only difference we have there is Guardians 1 is Phase 2, Guardians 2 is actually in Phase 3, which is confusing on how the timeline works a little bit. Yeah, but we're like I said, like we said at the beginning of this, uh, we're going based off the order of how they would have appeared in the MCU timeline. Correct. So the, that's the order we're going with uh, for this podcast. So yes, the next one we're going to be leading off with is Winter Soldier, followed by the two uh, Guardians movies. Mm-hmm. That'll lead us into Age of Ultron as well as we proceed to Ant Man, Civil War, Black Panther. Spider-Man Homecoming, Doctor Strange, Thor Ragnarok, Ant-Man and the Wasp. We'll revisit briefly Infinity War because we already have that long podcast. You know our thoughts on that. Um, Oh, no, remember, Ant-Man and the Wasp and the continuity sake was after Infinity War. Yeah. Um, So we're going to try and get part two out uh, before Endgame comes out next week um, because we'll have our own podcast solely focused on Endgame because, well, Endgame's going to deserve its own podcast all on itself. Oh, yeah. It's going to be way too big. It's a three-hour long movie, so that'll be another long, long podcast for us because it's yeah, going to be so long. We're going to go ahead and cut it here, guys. Uh, we will be back hopefully in the next few days here. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the meantime, I am Jason Kapasik. I'm Mike Winkler. And that is a wrap. We'll see you on Marvel Cinematic Universe Part 2.